This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Aberdeen Gas Services. Aberdeen Gas Services are your local family-run business of choice for boiler installations, repairs and servicing that you can rely on. Contact Aberdeen Gas Services for a free quote today on 01224 734 646 or visit their website at www.aberdeengasservices.co.uk Great sleight of foot there. Hello, welcome along to episode nine of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Ted Lasso, and joining me this week, as always, it's Graham Steele. Graham, how's it going? Uh, good, thanks. Now, Gavin Baxter may claim to have a contract as watertight as Matty Kennedy's, but his first team appearance record of late puts Nigel Pepper to shame. Now, Gavin's living up in Edinburgh once again, so it's just the two of us running through the main part of the show this week, but there's still plenty for us to get our teeth into. We're going to take some time to look back at the disappointing 2-0 reverse at Motherwell on Saturday, and we're going to pick through some of the reactions to the performance and provide our own thoughts on it. We'll provide an overview of the women's team and their 2-0 victory at Partick Thistle in SWPL1, and we'll take a wee look at how the Young Dons have done either at Aberdeen or out on their respective loans. And finally, we'll give you a preview of our home fixture against Cup double winners St. Johnston. And it's sort of turn this week for our interview segment, and it's a big hitter. A man who was only at Aberdeen for two seasons, but a man who is the very definition of a cult hero. We're delighted to have been joined by Lee Richardson for an in-depth look at his career, both pre- and post-Aberdeen. And he gives us an insight into his current role as a sports psychologist with Liverpool. So first things first, Muddle 2, Aberdeen nil for Park, the SPFL Premiership, the 11th of September 2021. Now, after an international break that seemed to last Forever, the Dons League campaign got back up and running with our first visit to Fir Park this season. Aberdeen making two changes to the side who drew 1-1 with Ross County last time out, Dean Campbell dropping back to the bench, and Austin Samuels missing out of the squad completely with injury. Jack McKenzie and Marley Watkins brought back into the starting lineup, and new signing David Bates making his first appearance on the bench. Now in the first half, Plenty of possession and territory, coupled with some pretty passing. And Aberdeen fashioned the first big chance. Calvin Ramsey swinging a a ball in, which eventually found its way to Marley Watkins, unmarked eight yards from goal. But his tame header was eventually gathered by Liam Kelly. A warning sign for Aberdeen followed on the 25th minute. A short corner to O'Hara and his looping ball finds Tony Watt at the back stick, but he heads wide with the goal at his mercy. And unfortunately, the Dons hadn't learned their lesson. From the resulting goal kick, Joe Lewis chips the ball out. It's cut out by Mugabe, the ball falling to Woolery and his cross the far post is met by Van Veen, who nods home from close range. Now, Van Veen was also very lucky to escape a second yellow card on 33 minutes at a poor tackle on Calvin Ramsey. And that was then followed up by Calvin Ramsey and hitting a, a decent shot from distance that was held by, by Liam Kelly. But at halftime, 1-0 to Motherwell, the Dons once again find themselves a goal behind and having to do all the chasing. Second half starts and the Dons started that pretty well, I thought. Um, attempts from Ferguson, a couple from Watkins, but all were dealt with reasonably comfortably by Liam Kelly. A poor tackle on Calvin Ramsey leaves the Dons right back off the pitch receiving treatment as Motherwell then work a, a short free kick out to Van Veen on the left wing. 
Watkins not doing enough to close the cross down and Ojala rose highest, outmuscling Lewis Ferguson to direct his header in off the bar to make it 2-0. And it was nearly three a couple of minutes later, Van Veen's cross come shot, clawed away by Lewis from under the crossbar and Grimshaw denied a tap-in with a fine tackle from Lewis Ferguson. And at that point, it's all started to go wrong and things are hindered even further with Calvin Ramsey being withdrawn with that injury, which allowed David Bates to hit, make his Aberdeen debut, Bates becoming the 900th player to uh, make an appearance for Aberdeen. Jet and Conor McLennan also soon took to the pitch, replacing King Ojo and Longstaff as the Dons. Once again, dominated possession, but fashioned little in the way of clear-cut chances as the game fizzled out. And remarkably, the Dons finished the game with 74% possession, 20 shots, seven of which are on target, but vastly underperform our XG of 1.01 once again. And even more remarkably, Motherwell, two shots on target in the entire game from which they scored both. So another bitterly disappointing afternoon in the, in the domestic league. What are your thoughts, Graham? Well, so I was unable to attend, so I'm going off highlights and you know match reports, but I think regardless of whether I was there or not, my opinion is 2-0 lost to Motherwell is poor, regardless of sort of circumstances. You know, I know we probably go down the rabbit hole talking about transition. People all have a different view of what a transition period is and how long it lasts and how long do people get you know, a kind of a free hit to get poor results like this. But I don't actually want to go down that that road tonight. I was just looking back through the highlights and the goals we conceded are just poor. And that's nothing to do with transition, in my opinion. That's just individual players not doing their jobs. That might sound a little bit harsh, but that's my take on it. I don't think... And I think I think Stephen Glass was, was honest enough to admit that, you know, that this wasn't down to us trying to fashion a way of playing and people just aren't getting it or it's taking time. This was just professional players not doing their job. So that's really disappointing. It's also worrying because I don't know if I could quite say it's a theme so far this season, but there have definitely been a number of individual errors contributing directly to uh, to us conceding goals. And I completely understand these things happen, but it feels like these things are happening every single game and we're being punished, and I'm not too sure how you fix that, but it, it's a bit alarming. Um, I think we were challenged before we came on, the exception of maybe Carabag, who did take us apart with some good play at times. I generally feel like most of the goals we've conceded this season have just been daft, and generally of our own making. For example, you know we've been passing it around in the defence, someone plays a silly ball out, that type of thing. Um, it's, it's a bit worrying, and actually when you look at the, the stats you, you touched on at the, at the end there, in one way, it's good that we have, you know, 74 possession is pretty good. Generally, I would say if you've got the ball more than the opposition, they're unlikely to hurt you. However, it's all very well if we are keeping the ball at the back or maybe pass it around midfield. But the lack of a cutting edge is really quite worrying. And it's also more worrying because I feel probably a lot of people listen to this the same way or watching the games. There's bits where you think that's fine, but what are we actually going to do with this? And then as I'm kind of finishing that thought in my head, we've done something stupid at the other end and we're going down. Oh, you're right. I think that's the big the big issue. I mean, we touched on it there. It, it's no wins in six now. Um, I think we've only had one clean sheet in nine. It's like between the two 18-yard boxes, I think we're doing a lot of good stuff. Um, we're, we're playing the ball around well. We're knocking about well. We're actually making, I think, good forward passes through the lines as well, relatively quickly, which is good to see. I know there's been some complaints that potentially the weekend we kind of reverted a little bit back to that swinging you passing movement around the back and I saw a little bit of that I thought but I'm not sure it was necessarily as prevalent as, as some people were making out to be 
But yeah, you're right. At the back, we're kind of all over the shop, it feels like at the moment. And you're right, it's not as though teams are cutting us open and we're 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 all over the shop because we're being made to be that way, but with incisive movement and 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 you know, cutting passes from 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 the opposition. A lot of these are really, really basic goals we're losing. I mean, the two at the weekend are classic examples of that. I mean, the first goal, we've literally just had a warning a minute before um, about a cross ball coming in and no one's picking up um, Tony Watt in the first one. You know, the goal, does Lewis make his chip out a little bit too easy to read? Maybe. Should somebody be challenging Mugabe for the header more firmly? Absolutely. Um, McCrory and I think it's Watt kind of get tangled up a little bit together before the ball drops out to Wuri. It's a decent cross. It's a it's, it's a good cross ball. It's into the right area, but you'd be expecting, you know, an international defender in Gallagher to be to be dealing with that a little bit better. And I kind of feel he, he doesn't do enough. Um, and it's an easy header for Van Veen. Yeah, very much so. When I was just looking through it, you're right. We can solve if buts and maybe's. How did we get as far as getting, you know, letting the ball come into the box? But it did. And it looked to me like Gallagher either had no awareness of the guy behind him or I don't know, because it just looked like he was just basically watching it sail over his head. Um, I didn't see any effort to either A, go and attack the ball or at least try and bump into the guy or something and try and put him off. I appreciate there's the risk of a penalty or something, but watch it sail over your head to the opposition player didn't really feel like the way to defend it to me. Yeah, and the second goal is almost, it's, it's not a carbon copy, but it's not far off. But, um, now we're a bit unfortunate Calvin Ramsey's off the pitch at that point, so Marley Watkins is kind of having to do a you know, a job at, at right back. But, you know, for me, I don't think he does enough to stop the cross from Van Veen coming in. Uh, he makes it way too easy for, for for Van Veen to get the ball across. And it comes in and, you know, for me, Lewis Ferguson is just sleeping. Um, he nearly, it, it's almost like he ducks out of it. You know, I, I think I said when we did the intro there that, you know, it was Ojala kind of rose above everybody else. I'm not entirely sure if that actually is the case, thinking on it in retrospect. I think he just had to kind of be there and, Ferguson didn't do enough to try and win the ball. And again, it's an easy head that he's, you know, he's, he's five or six yards out at that point. Yeah, it's really disappointing. We had bodies there. You know, it's not like it's a free header as such. But yeah, you're right. The, the inaction from Ferguson kind of made it a free header. But we had bodies around him. And yeah, the, Mark, the Watkins point, um, I do think, is valid in this sense. I know it's easy to say, oh, well, that's not his position. But given what he had to do... Granted, I've never played professional football, but sticking with someone and trying to block a cross doesn't seem like the trickiest thing to do, regardless of whether you're a forward player or not. The other worrying piece for us as well here is that that's another game where we found ourselves going behind and therefore are having to do all the chasing. And I guess it's all lift spots and maybes. You know, Watkins has a great chance um, on eight minutes. That header's, I wouldn't necessarily unforgivable, but it's getting into that sort of territory not to make the keeper work a bit harder than he had to um, for that one. And that is one of those that, you know, that goes in. It, it does probably change the complexion of the game, I think. Um, the way we were knocking the ball around throughout the game, even when we were 2-0 down, I still felt that like we were keeping possession really well. We were we were playing our way around Motherwell, I thought, pretty effectively. Um, it changes the entire dynamic of the game if, if we manage to get our noses in front. It makes Motherwell have to come out. I felt like Motherwell, to me, were, were sitting in a relatively low block, trying to make it, Difficult for us to try and penetrate and break through against them, doing it pretty well. Um, I thought they were, I thought they tried to make the game niggly. Um, I would like to have seen a stronger referee, I think, in that game. I think that John Beaton let an awful lot of things go that I think in the current game, you know, 
there was there was a lot of bookings left on the table, I think, from the referee at the weekend. Now, this isn't really pointing fingers at the ref. I just think it's something that needs to be said. But at the same time, and I think I tweeted out at the time, teams are going to try and do that against us this season. They're going to try and sit in. They're going to try and disrupt. They're going to try and break the game up by being niggly. We have to find a way to kind of rise up against that and and deal with it. And if it means having to be a bit more physical or having to maybe be a little bit more direct ourselves to try and counter that, we need to figure out solutions to those problems. Yeah, absolutely, and that, that was going to be my point when you were talking about the, the referee. I suppose you have a different view of it as a fan because probably anything that you don't get you think is a travesty and anything given against you, oh, the, the referee's an idiot. But I don't think it's unreasonable to say the, the standard of the officiating is, first of all, inconsistent and probably, secondly, not always up to, to par. So I think you're absolutely right teams might get an opportunity to break up and boot people about because they don't necessarily get uh, punished for it. But that's not it's not a new thing for this season. You know, this can't be a surprise. So you're absolutely right. We need to find a way to deal with that now, whether that is, yeah, maybe just taking fewer... I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to say as, see as taking fewer risks as such because that's where good goals can come from. Well, that's where you can cut a team open by taking a pass where they don't expect it, that type of thing. But we do need to find a way to do that. And whether that is fight fire with fire, you know, switch up the personnel a little bit, or yeah, you're right, maybe the the guidance for the management has to be, well, if, if they're going to do it to you, you need to get in on top of them as well. But then it, be kinda, it becomes a bit of a war of attrition. And theoretically, we have better players, so we could still come out of that. But I'm not really sure, personally speaking, I necessarily want to go and watch us try and match that style for 90 minutes because it's not really what I was hoping for this season. Um, I think we were all looking to enjoy a little bit more football. And now there are definitely signs of that, uh, the possession statistics, for example. It is a little bit concerning that um, if we're just keeping it around the back, you're never going to hurt teams if you're just keeping possession in your box, basically. But still, principally, if we can keep the ball and we can pass it around with a bit of flair, I do think that will start to deliver the goods. But I do also feel that we we need to start getting something tangible, i.e. points on the board, sooner rather than later. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I, I completely understand as you manager, and I've been on this a couple of times saying, I'll give him time, and I absolutely will. I'm standing by that. But there needs to be something sooner rather than later that people can latch on to. Otherwise... I totally understand uh, the point of view of, uh, what's the point? This is worse than it was before. That's not what we signed up for. And I even all have the point of view of where their line is in sand in terms of, is it another couple of games, is it another couple of months? Uh, And I actually don't know what my point of view is, because I I think I've said at the start, I wanted to see signs of improvement. And there were initially, I would say, I feel like we've regressed a little bit, but then he has got some new players in and it probably does take a little bit time to get everyone used to not necessarily what he's trying to do the professional footballers but different team different teammates some of the guys have moved up maybe they've got family elsewhere their minds maybe not quite where it should be so I'm hoping um he can get this cracked in a couple of you know a couple of weeks because in years gone by we've watched Aberdeen teams and you think well we've got nothing out of the game but we were lucky to get nothing because we don't have a good squad I don't think it's a personnel issue in terms of quality in my opinion it's just not quite gelling yet yeah, I think we'll touch on um, we'll touch on whether or not whether we think Glass is kind of really under pressure in, in a couple of minutes. I guess um, I want to kind of go back to I guess the selection um, even for the starting lineup on, on on Saturday because I think this was something that again raised a lot of eyebrows with with fans. You know, we we started the game with 
what you would class ordinarily as being, I guess, five recognised central midfielders in the starting lineup in McCrory, Brown, Ferguson, King Ojo, and Longstaff. Now, obviously, McCrory is being played as a uh, at the back, so you can kind of discount him. But even there, you're talking then about having four central midfielders in that team, and I think there's a lot of people confused about you know why we're still doing that, whether that's the right thing to do. I do wonder, I made the point to somebody on Twitter about this, that I wonder if Longstaff was brought in under the belief that Lewis Ferguson would leave on, on transfer deadline day. It seemed a bit of an odd choice to bring a, a central midfielder into the club when we're already overloaded with them all over the place, unless it was because Ferguson was leaving. Um, and we felt we needed you know, some some quality to kind of step in and, and, and bridge that gap for the, for the season. And so I do wonder if we've been kind of left a little bit high and dry with that, not blaming Longstaff, obviously, for this, and he needs a little bit of time to, to bed in as well. But if we've paid a loan fee, which was reported that we had, and if there is an agreement that we have to make sure that he plays a certain number of games or whatever, it's going to make it very difficult for the manager to kind of to, to figure that particular problem out because you imagine Brown is effectively undroppable. Um, Ferguson if we want to sell him for decent money, probably needs to play, notwithstanding the fact he's not been in the best of form, I don't think, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and then if, if we're having to pay money on long staff or having to contribute to wages or whatever, if he's not playing games, again, they'll become a bit of an onus or an obligation to, to keep him in the team. And I just do wonder if if that's causing us a little bit, bit of an issue on the creative sense. I know that, again, there was talk about this at the weekend, that, well, while they're all central midfielders, they're all not playing a defensive central midfielder role. And that's fair enough. They're not. They're being asked to do different things at different points in the system. But that doesn't change the fact that maybe those players are not, A, capable of playing that slightly different role within a central midfield, so not just coming deep and picking up the ball or whatever. And that what that is doing is actually potentially stifling us in our attacking phase of of play. Now, we're absolutely missing Ryan Hedges. Um, It's unfortunate for us that I think... You know, for me, the only player we have in the squad who can effectively link midfield and attack is Hedges, and and him not being around is a, is a big issue. Um, and that's you can see at the weekend, you can see that that's where we were really missing is that dynamic link between midfield and attack that could make something happen quickly and break those lines. But do you think we're going to be stuck with this issue about the number of central midfielders and how we 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 deal with that for the rest of the season? I think we probably are. I think a couple of good points and fair points in there. I, well, I think it's more than speculation that Ferguson did want to go. So, But what I will say around that is the club decided to control that by not letting him go. So this situation, the club has brought on itself or the manager has brought on itself by if Stephen Glass says, for example, you're not selling Lewis Ferguson and the club say, well, okay, you're the manager, we're not going. Regardless of how we ended up with the number of people we've ended up with, is what he wanted is the view I'm taking that he he got the players he wanted. And I include Ferguson in that. And so I know Ferguson was there before, but we, we didn't sell him. So, and he has been playing. So I'm kind of taking the view that Glass wants to keep him and sees him as part of the team. Although I do absolutely take your point that whether we were trying to call someone's bluff and it didn't work out for us and we didn't get a revised bid, the bottom line is he's here. He's going to be less valuable the next transfer window anyway, just by the fact that his contract will have run down by another few months. And yeah, if we if we don't play him, for the for, for absolutely the right reasons, I agree, he's not quite the player I know he can be. 
that's only going to hurt us further. So it is a little bit of a tricky situation. And if there is stuff in there around Longstaff, which doesn't seem unreasonable, given that they gave him another year, he hasn't been playing for periods because he has been injured. So he needs to get back up to speed and he needs some experience. And I would imagine if, yeah, Newcastle are probably unlikely to say, yeah, yeah, just keep him for a year, stick him on the bench, that's fine by us. You you kind yeah, you are kind of looking at two there in Ferguson and Longstaff that probably have expectations we probably have to play. And then Brown, at some point, I feel like he'll need a bit of a rest, but you're right. I don't know what he was told when he came when he came up here, but probably expectation is that he was going to play as well. So I think it's all fair, but what I would say is that's that's our fault. We've brought that on ourselves. Um but it does <laughs> I think I said it before a couple of weeks ago, it feels like there's a few good players in there, but they're all kind of tripping over each other, as in they're all in the same space. You know, that individually they're all fine, but I just don't think they work too, yeah, they don't work too well because there's just too many of them kind of try to do the same thing. And I get that they're professional footballers and they should be able to maybe play a different role, which is age-old fan frustration is that you watch players in opposition teams and then your team signs and the manager decides, I know he's done that job for 10 years, but I wonder if he could do this job for us. I think, well, no, he can't, because that's why he that's why you signed him, because he played well in a position. Yeah, and you're right. And that's, you know, it's a conundrum that Glass is going to have to solve now. And he's going to have to try and figure out his best system, his best 11. I, I still don't think he knows really what his best lineup is. And there are some mitigating factors in there. I don't think we've had our, what you would call our core first team group, really all fully fit at the same time to really try and figure out exactly what our, our our best 11 and what system is going to work for us. One positive, I thought that David Bates came off the bench for the last like 20, 25 minutes at the weekend. I thought he looked pretty good. thought he looked tidy. He's a lot bigger than I actually remember him, him being before he left, was taking the ball, striding out of defence with it, which is what we're going to need as teams are going to sit and play with a low block against us. We need to have a ball-carrying centre-back who's willing to, to step forward with the ball and try and break some lines that way. I was kind of encouraged by his by his performance in the opening 20 minutes. I was kind of surprised he didn't start the game. Um, I know there's a lot of chat about he's not got a lot of match fitness, which, you know, is, is one thing. The only way you're going to get match fitness is to play games. Um, but I thought he looked I thought he looked good. Apart from that, not much else really to write home about for us. Do you think there was a lot of reaction on Saturday night, Sunday, about the result? Do you think Glass is actually under pressure already? Uh, well, yeah, yes and no. And yes, as in, you're the manager of Aberdeen, so the expectation is, and I don't think it's unreasonable, that you're going to be beating the likes of Otherwell and you're going to be beating the likes of Ross County. So those results, I don't really think it matters too much what stage we are at. They're not good enough results. So he's definitely behind where we should be. So he's in trouble from that point of view. But is he under pressure in the club? I, I doubt it. I think it's probably just fans voicing their frustration, which, to be fair, I totally get because it's not really been what I'd hoped for. But I can't imagine that actually the likes of Dave Cormack, you know, the, the board level, are actually too concerned about this. And I don't mean they don't care. I just mean they will have a longer view and probably a more impartial view than I will. Yeah, I think I mean, when, when I was talking about pressure, I was meaning from the support more than the boardroom, I think. Glass is going to have an element of protection from the board, I think, for a, a period of time, un- unless the wheels well and truly come off and, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting a relegation battle or something that might spark a, a change from, from the board. I'm still in kind of two minds about this one a little bit. I think you're right. 
as a fan of Aberdeen, the last two results have not been have not been good, and you would hope for much better. Now, Motherwell's Motherwell's always been a relatively tricky away tie for us, but I, I would have liked to have seen us really really stamp our influence on that game on Saturday. And whilst we did a lot of good stuff with the ball, we didn't do enough good stuff with the ball. The Ross County match was incredibly disappointing. Coming hot off the heels of the Carabag performance, you know, we weren't entirely convincing um, at Livingston. Obviously, we kind of get out of jail there with a, a last-minute hurler from their keeper. The second half at Tynecastle was good, I thought. United at home, thought we did okay. Never really had to get out of a second gear really in that match because I thought United were garbage. So it's kind of, I guess it is a little bit difficult to kind of really judge exactly where we're at again. And I'm kind of the same as you. I, I think the bit I was... A, the bit I'm most disappointed in over the last couple of games in particular has been that earlier in the season, Glass was consistently making in-game adjustments, whether that be tweaking systems or whether that be making early substitutions, etc., to try and like correct things that were not panning out well on the pitch. And I kind of feel in the Ross County in the uh, Motherwell game at the weekend that that's kind of disappeared a little bit. And I don't know why that is, because I, I think we all appreciate that actually the boldness of 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 those tweaks. Now, part of that will be because obviously in in, in Europe you were able to make more substitutions than you can domestically, but he was still doing it domestically. You saw it at Tynecastle; he made a really key switch at half time to try and um, pin the the Hearts two holding midfielders a bit further back and to push push some wingers up further up the pitch, and it worked for us. And I just haven't seen it for the last couple of games, and I think that's really worrying. The thing for me, I guess, still is that, you know, people will say he's been in the door for six months. Realistically, you have to write off the back end of last season. That meant absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. So in reality, he's really had three months at it. And in that three months, he's had very little time actually to get the players on the training pitch and, and work with them. Um, so, so that absolutely is a mitigating factor, as is some of the injuries we've had. You know, I was in that place. I wanted the last manager gone. He'd done a, a, a good job for three or four seasons we shouldn't you know we, we shouldn't dismiss that but the last three seasons of McInnes were just terrible to watch and, and I wanted a change and I wanted a change in philosophy I wanted a change in the way we were going to play so I'm willing to give I have my reservations still about whether Stephen Glass was the right manager for the job I'm not entirely sure that the process that they went through to get him was you know all above board and correct and all that good stuff but at the end of the day he's the manager how he got there is not really his fault um there's nothing we can do to, to 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 change that. He needs to get some time to to try and get this working. Um, I am still encouraged by what we're trying to do. I just, you're right. I think we just need to start seeing some some more positive uh, results out of that. And I saw, you know, some people talking about, well, look at Callum Davidson last season. He's a rookie manager, and he got, you know, St Johnston won the cup double. And it's like, yeah, that's a fair point. But at the same time, Callum Davidson inherited a a very settled St. Johnston squad that Tom Wright had left. You compare that to the absolute mess of a squad Stephen Glass inherited. They're chalk and cheese as far as that's concerned. And people forget St. Johnston were bottom of the table in November. I think they won one match in that opening phase. And there were St. Johnston fans calling for the head of Calm Davidson at that point. And, you know, fair enough, they gave him a bit of time and it worked out for them. The one thing I would say is that what we're trying to do fundamentally as a football club is not a quick fix. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Teams can have players come in and come out like Motherwell have done. I think we touched on it last week. What did they have? 20 players, some of daft. 
25 with five loanies or something. Yeah, it was it was around about 20, 25. So a, a couple of squads, basically, you know, or a, a couple of team sheets. It was a, a significant number of players. A big turnover of players in and out, but Motherwell are still playing in the same way they've played for the last five or six years. They're not being asked to do something different. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to get a, a group of guys who don't know each other because they've all just come in the door, but we're also asking them all to try and play in a in a particular style, a, a particular system that we want to try and do that's that's gonna take time and ultimately you know again if you want players who can just walk in the door and grasp straight away what it is they're being asked to do and and execute it they ain't going to be coming to Aberdeen because they'll be way outside of our price range they're all going to have particular limitations same goes for the manager you know again no managerial appointment is a cast iron guarantee of success Uh, you've seen it even with some of the 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 biggest names in management when they go to certain clubs, it just doesn't work out for them. And just because things are not quite going well right now, it doesn't mean that getting rid of Derek McInnes was not the right thing to do. No, I'd agree with that. I think it maybe just depends on your point of view. And this is where I know I differ from you and Gavin in the last couple of seasons around like McInnes. Yeah, it wasn't particularly good to watch, but the results were generally speaking there in the league. You know, there was that period where we didn't have maybe like a Hayes, McGinn, McLean on form the way we, we did have them and we weren't as exciting, but we were still at the right end of the table. And I was I was all right with it because it's professional sport. It's about winning. I'm less concerned about how we get there. I know you and Gavin were, oh, this is rubbish, etc. And then, you know, when the football was still rubbish and then the results fell away, that was the point where... I was of the opinion, okay, something has to give because the main thing I'm looking for, the results aren't happening. So a change is required. So I think people maybe have a different point of view on this matter. And I'm kind of looking at it saying the results aren't good enough. I, I don't, I agree with you that that doesn't mean we shouldn't have made the change. We should have made the change. It was the right thing to do. You never know if it's going to work out or not, but that's not a reason to, to stay with what you've got. But the results are not good enough as it stands. However, maybe people that are more minded towards, well, I want to watch a style of football, maybe taking a back seat and saying, yeah, I can see this, the signs and things are starting to change and I'll give them time. But, you know, that's just the nature of a fan base is never going to agree on one outcome. They all want the same thing, which is generally a successful Aberdeen, but they maybe don't have a different view as to how you get there and how quickly you should get there. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing. I, I need to kind of caveat my point with, you know, I'm not so... I'm not talking here that I want to watch us lose every game but play pretty football. They have to go hand in hand. I want to see results, but at the same time, I'm willing to give the manager at the moment a period of time. And I, I, I said it, I think I said at the start of the season, for me, I was kind of writing this season off before we even started about how we would end up. I, I, I felt if we came in the top six, I reckon that would be probably about expected. Do I expect us to set the, hat, the header on fire every week? Probably not. I think it's going to take a bit of time for this to come through. Was I expecting us to win the Cups this season? Probably not. Was I expecting us to go as far as we actually did in Europe? I wasn't. Um, the problem will come, like I said earlier on, is if we suddenly slip down the league and we're actually facing a real a real challenge to stay in the top flight. Now, hopefully it doesn't, it doesn't come to that. But if it does, absolutely, there's going to have to be questions asked at that point about where we're going and if this is working and, and whether we need to, to, to reevaluate. It could be that trying to play this style of football in Scottish, in the Scottish game, unless you're one of you know the two that have got big pockets and you can buy in technically gifted players who can cope with teams stifling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you're not in that place, then maybe you have to readapt and just 
you know, accept the fact that this might not be the playground to play that way. Yeah, and therein lies the dilemma because you don't know that until you try it, do you? So, and that's kind of the phase where we're in here, which was, yeah, other than obviously the League Cup success was excellent. We actually won something for a change. And we did have a few seasons where we were there or thereabouts in cup finals. So we were good to watch. But prior, you know, sort of post that period, uh, although our results were better, in, a, in an extent, to an extent, it's kind of irrelevant because we, didn't, we still didn't do anything. Um, and then it became less enjoyable to actually go to Pataudry and the atmosphere change. So the change was right. A different direction was worth pursuing, in my opinion, because if we just go for the same old, well, I don't really know why anyone would expect anything to be different. Um, it's just going to come down to how long people are prepared to, to put up with this. Now, to be, you know, it might be another couple of months when we might be talking about this, or who knows, it might click against St. Johnston. Um, we might go on a little bit of a run and all of a sudden table looks a little bit better, forms a little bit better and, you know, people are kind of back on side again. Yeah, uh, I mean, fingers crossed that's the case. I think that, I think everybody wants to see a successful Aberdeen team, however that comes about. And I think that, you know, for me, I would just, you know, plead for a bit of patience, I guess, amongst people. It's been a couple of bad results. Um, it's not necessarily the end of the world at the moment and, and we'll see where we go to get to in the next few weeks. I think there still needs to be a bit more of a sample size before we can really judge exactly where we are and where we're going um, at, at this moment in time. So let's take another quick look at some other news from Pataudry and Cormac Park this weekend. So obviously the Aberdeen women picked up a fine 2-0 victory at Park at Thistle to get their SWPL1 campaign up and running. Another impressive performance for the Dons, who are still missing Bailey Hutchison and Kelly Forrest. And Lauren Gordon also missed out this week. New signing Louise Brown gets her first start with a bench featuring a number of young players from within the AFC ladies' youth ranks. And after a goalless first half that Thistle probably edged, the Dons grabbed the lead on 53 minutes, a first strike of the season for Eva Thompson after a piercing run and pass from Joe Fraser that split the Thistle defence. And the Dons wrapped up the points deep in injury time as substitute Maya Christie from the 19th squad grabbed her first goal for the senior team as the Dons countered effectively as Thistle chased an equaliser. All in all, a fine victory on the road for Aberdeen made all the more impressive for Emma Hunter and Gavin Beath's charges with the ongoing injury struggles that the side continue to face. And next week, it's a home fixture against Hamilton, who joined the top flight alongside Aberdeen in the close season. That'll give the Dons hopefully an opportunity to put another three points on the board and really solidify their start to the campaign. And looking at the young team, a fine five-star second-half performance from Barry Robson's side saw them rout Hamilton Aki's 5-0 at New Douglas Park. Goals from Alfie Babbage, Liam Harvey, and a fine hat-trick from Ryan Duncan, ensuring the young team keep up their impressive start to the Cass Scotland Under-18 campaign. And next up is a visit from Dundee United to Cormac Park. On loan watch this week, Michael Ruth, who made a move to Falkirk earlier in the week, got a first start for Paul Sheeran's side. They fell to a 2-0 defeat away to Aloe Athletic, Ruth getting booked and lasting 60 minutes before being substituted. Mark Gallagher came off the bench on 82 minutes for fourth in their 1-0 defeat at Sterling Albion. And Connor Baden missed out altogether for Kelty Hearts as they maintained their unbeaten start to the season with a 1-1 draw with Elgin City. And in the Highland League, Kevin Hanratty and Tyler McKaita returned to the for Martin United starting lineup. And Huntley provided Jack McIver his debut for Huntley having secured a loan move there last week for Martin running out 5-1 victors in that one. Jack Milne was on the bench for Brecon City coming on for the final 20 minutes as Brecon defeated Nairn County 3-1 on the road. And finally, Luke Turner also came off the bench for Cliftonville in their 1-1 draw at Crusaders in the Northern Irish Premiership. And as is always an enjoyable weekly segment, let's have a wee look at the ABZ FP Fantasy Football Scotland League. 
And it's a fine week for grey growlers. Oof. John Easton, 59 points in game week five, leading the charge with 347 points. Scrapone, Matteo Scarpelli, 55 points, 343. And in third place, it's the Aberdream team again from Craig Smith. He's doing pretty well this season. He's, he's consistently appearing in this. 49 points, 339 points in total. One of my favourite things to do, though, on this app is to go through the, the team names, and I don't always get a chance to do it, but I've just spotted in 21st spot. Fred West Ham, Matt Carl, delightful stuff. It's a terrible week for myself, sliding down the table to 110th place with only 36 points on the board. Graham, how did you do? Uh, the usual, I was garbage. I, um, I got 33 points and I'm now in 187th position. Nice, nice. And I can't even be bothered looking to see where, where Gav's got to. If you're still involved in the league this year, obviously all the best. Keep on keeping on. There's some great prizes to be won towards the back end of the season on this one. And speaking of prizes, we've still got one signed Duncan Shearer shirt from the 1990-92 season available in our raffle. There's still some slots available for this one. All proceeds are going to go to the Aberdeen FC Community Trust. A £5 entry for a number. We're going to close this down next Monday, so that's the 20th of September. If you'd like to enter, please fire an email to abzfootballpodcast at gmail.com and we'll give you all the details about how you can enter from there. So moving on, this Saturday sees the first visit of the campaign to Pathology for last season's Cup double winners, St. Johnston. So currently find themselves sat in eighth place in the table, five points behind Aberdeen after the opening five games of the season. Saints have scored two and conceded four goals in that run. This run, seeing them lose 1-0 to Dundee United and drawing 1-1 with Muddle and uh, suffering a defeat to Rangers 2-1 at home this season. And unsurprisingly for any fan of Scottish football in recent seasons, both of St. Johnson's away fixtures this season have ended in 0-0 draws at Ross County and St. Mirren, respectively. A real mixed bag for the Saints this season so far. Their European campaign earning them a lot of plaudits in the early phase of the season for their impressive draws away at Galatasaray and with Lask of Austria. But ultimately... They've not won any of their matches in normal time this season. Their only victory actually coming via a penalty shootout against our Broth in the Premier Sports Cup. I guess perhaps maybe the first signs of pressure beginning to appear for Callum Davidson as he moves into his second year in charge of the Saints. He'll obviously have time on his side, having won the Cup double last season, but Saints will be keen to arrest this run of form pronto. And they've not been helped with the departure of Ali McCann and Jason Kerr late on transfer deadline day to press in a Wigan respectively. Neither of those moves being kind of received particularly well by the Saints' support. Little in the way of notable transfers coming in, other than the loaning in of Lars Den Donker from Brighton, bolstering the SPFL top flight with more players from their fringes, but suspiciously not sending any to Hibs despite their strategic initiative. And last season, we remained unbeaten against the Saints with three wins out of four. Graham, what are you expecting at Pataudry this Saturday? Well, based on our defending to date, probably not St. Johnston ending with a nil. I, I think there might be goals in this one, and I don't know if that's a good thing for us or not. I'm not too sure what to expect, mainly because we were we were talking about Motherwell. I imagine St. Johnston are going to try something similar, as in they're going to be difficult to beat, they're going to sit in. I don't think they're going to come to Patoji with the view of, you know, let's really go and give Aberdeen the game and we're going for the three points which I think actually would suit us better. I think we're going to find it's difficult, again, 
based on what we've seen to date this season, that although I do think there are signs that we have better players and we will at a point to play some better football, we're not really breaking teams down. So I'm not really sure actually where the goals are going to come from from a Haberian point of view on Saturday, because I feel like, you know, unless in the space of a week, he's gone from Motherwell to figuring out, ah, right, I've, I have a plan to deal with those type of tactics, which seems unlikely. Um, I'm not saying he can't figure it out. It just feels like a week. It's quite a short period of time to figure that out. So I'm, to be honest, I'm kind of expecting us to huff and puff, look quite good in spells, have plenty of the ball, give them chances. And I'm not too sure we're really going to create any. So if we do, feel like we absolutely need to take them because I'm not too sure we're really going to be getting that many chances. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot's going to obviously rest on whether Calvin Ramsey is fit um, to play. Obviously, Ramsey's been pretty much our most creative outlet for most of the season, which is a little bit worrying when it's your right back slash right wing back that's providing you with with, with that attacking threat. Hopefully, Austin Samuels will be will be fit. I think they'd indicated they, they, they felt he should be fit for this weekend. It was a, a minor knock he, he picked up in training. It just meant that Saturday came a bit too soon for him. Because I think we actually probably need that that pace, I think, um, around it, up at the top end of the pitch. We're, we're really lacking in that. You know, Marley Watkins will do a good shift in putting himself about and chasing down balls and, and all that kind of good stuff. But he doesn't have any blistering out-and-out pace. Ramirez is the same. I think it's going to be unlikely that Ryan Hedges is, is is going to make the squad, although I noticed that he was pictured at Cormac Park early in the week back in training. I think you're right. All in all, it's, it's going to be one of those games, a typical tie against St. Johnston, I'd imagine. We're going to have to try and figure out some answers to, to those questions. I would not be surprised to see David Bates uh, starting. be interesting to see whether or not we do drop one of the kind of midfield four um, in Brown, Ferguson, Longstaff, or... Or Ojo, I would expect if, if any of them were to drop out, it would probably be Ojo. I'm not entirely sure really what he... I, I feel that his limitations in the role that we're asking to play in were kind of pretty apparent again at Fir Park um, at the weekend. He's, he's had a good start to the season, but I, I think that if we're going to try and progress this year, I'm not entirely sure he's he's really what we're what we're after in that role. But yeah, it's going to be another, another battle, one would imagine. And uh, again, like I say, we're going to have to try and figure out pretty quickly uh, a solution to the problems that St. Johnson are going to bring to us. Yeah, so I hope Samuels is available. I like Watkins. I, he was fine first time round. I'm sure he'll do a good job. But you're right, he's not really going to run away from anyone. He put in a shift and he's by no means poor with the ball at his feet. So I'm quite happy to have him starting. But we do need a different dynamic up front. You're right. Again, Ramirez, I think, will, will score goals, but he needs people to be sort of creating those chances for him. I don't think he'll create much himself because I don't think he can burst away from anyone. Samuels, albeit um, you know, I only saw him against or I only saw him against Ross County, but at the start it was quite encouraging because we weren't just shelling balls to him. I mean, people were playing like balls down the line, you know, a bit behind the right back, and he was just using his pace to go onto it. And that in itself just causes panic sometimes. Or you find the ball doesn't go to him, but a couple of guys have gravitated to his side of the pitch because they know they probably need to help each other out. And before you know it, there's a pocket of space for a Watkins or a Ramirez that might not have been there otherwise. I would imagine Watkins and Ramirez, relatively speaking, are easy-ish to mark because if we shell the ball up to them, most defenders are going to deal with that. And if we're playing the ball into them, you don't really have to worry about the pace. So it's more making sure probably that you hold them up or your midfield comes back and supports you. Samuels gives us 
something else. And I hope we just don't take that as let's just shell it up and get him work in the channels. I'd like to think we can do something. Like, but even if we, do you know what? Even if we do that, get us up. Um, you know, get 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 gets us up at the at their end of the pitch. You know, you start to get a bit of territory that can build a bit of pressure. So I think I'd like to see him fit. And other than that, I think the midfield point is good again. I, on the assumption that St Johnston are going to be slightly negative, I don't think you necessarily need to pack your your midfield with defensive minded midfielders. I feel you could probably take one out and whether that means you you still maybe have four but someone's a bit more attack minded or you change your, your shape a little bit it's a bit negative from an Aberdeen manager I feel like we're packing the midfield at home to St Johnston in my opinion anyway we're kind of talking as though Ramirez is, is guaranteed to start do you think this is actually possibly a game for Jet? you know my opinions on Jet, so I'm not so sure any game's a game for Jet. second half at time cancel apart I'm, I don't really have a great deal of time for him the reason I'm wondering is just it, it strikes me as being a game that's actually probably exactly suited for him. If a, if a team comes and sits with a low block, stick him up top, make him a bit of a battering ram, let him kind of drop in a little bit short, especially if he's playing alongside with like a Samuels, for example, alongside him with a bit of pace. We saw what he did against Hearts. Jet's not going to be a player you're going to play up front and against teams who are going to move the ball around quickly and who you need to, to, to press. We're unlikely to have to do that against St. John's. So I kind of wonder if this is actually a game that might be more suited to him. And maybe at the same time, it might not be a bad thing for Ramirez to maybe get a little bit of a break. I feel that he's been doing a lot of a lot of work. He's done a lot of running around. He's barely seen the ball, actually, in, in what feels like about four or five games now, probably longer than that. Um, you know, it maybe just would do him a bit of good just to, to come out of the team a little bit. So he's even even from that perspective, you know, we've, we've spoken with strikers, Duncan Shearer, Adol Stavrum on this podcast already. If he gets in a run where he's not scoring goals, okay, I know he's scoring against Ross County, but it's a tap-in and anyone else could have done it. If he gets in a run where he's not scoring goals, there's going to be questions asked about whether he's actually a goal scorer or not. And I think it's really difficult to judge on that right now because we've got, again, such a small sample size to judge from. Um, even just to try and protect his confidence a bit, I wonder if it's maybe a game to, to take him out of the firing line to an extent. I think that is a fair point. I'm probably a little bit... I, I am a little bit guilty of quickly forming an opinion on a player and uh, I've probably formed my view of Jet, so I'm probably focusing on, I don't necessarily want him in the team, not necessarily considering how he might fit the way the game goes. So I think you're absolutely right, he probably is a better fit, and I do think that Amira's point is valid. There comes a point where putting him out every week and either, not not so much that he's not scoring, it'd be difficult if he's, you know, if he's creating chances for other people, for example, he's contributing to the team. Yeah, I imagine he might be saying, oh, I wish he'll score more, but I'd probably be looking at it saying, well, I thought he was going to score the goals, but he's putting chances on a plate for everyone else and they're scoring them, so job done in my book. Probably does do him a bit of yeah, a bit of good to maybe get taken out the fire line. And actually, to be honest, at some point you're going to have to rest him. He's not going to play every game every season, so we do have to be trying different things. So that's the point in the squad. Um, I, he's not done enough to be, you know, a, a nailed-on starter. So yeah, maybe maybe we'll do something different. And again, didn't work on Saturday with what he tried. So that might figure into his thinking that that didn't work. Maybe I do need to go and do something different. I mean, one thing I, I'm really looking to try and see more of um, this weekend is is our set pieces. Um, I, I don't know what's what's gone on in the last 
again, four or five games, it feels like. You know, we started the campaign, a lot of creative corner kicks, set pieces, etc. You saw them against Hecken, we saw it against Braithablick. And then the last few weeks, I don't know, I, I don't understand what's going on with these corner kicks, especially where we're just, where Ramsey's effectively just like chipping it in towards the kind of penalty spot six-yard area. Because I look at that and I go, that's just so easy for goalkeepers just to come out and claim that. There's no pace on it. It's just being chipped up. I, I don't get it. And I don't understand why we're doing that, especially when we've got an attacking set-piece coach, specialist, whatever, working there. And there was, and we saw it early in the season. There was instances of creative set-pieces working. I don't understand why we've regressed so badly. No, and what really annoys me is you're right, there's... It's not only is it easy for the keeper to come and claim, it's easy for the keeper to come and fumble and get the free kick, you know, because it just looks like the our attacker has jumped with him or pushed him out of the way type thing. They're, they're all on top of each other. And if someone comes in and really meets the ball, it's obviously he was going for the ball, uh, you're probably less likely to be penalised. Yeah, it's a bit annoying because he's not limited as a footballer, Ramsey. If there was maybe someone else taking our corners, I'd be saying, I don't know why they're taking them, but oh, I can see what he's doing because he's he's just not that great a set piece. So yeah, it, it's annoying. And if that's all you ever do, then you're not really going to score many goals from it because everyone knows what you're going to do. Whereas you're right, the the routines that we did have earlier on the season, I know the, yeah, the quality was slightly different, but we tried one of them against, I think we tried at least one or two against Ross County we were just unlucky on the day. There was at least one where Ramirez did get the header, but there was a, you know, Ross County defender was in the way. So, yeah, because it's not really, again, it goes back to what we, or maybe I'm imagining what we were told or promised, but this, the the recruitment of Alan Russell was supposed to be to give us a bit of something else that we haven't had before than just McGinn pumping corners long and us all getting <laughs> on his back. And so, yeah, we've, we've gone back on that front and that's a little bit, disappointing yeah so absolutely we need to see much improvement i think on the set piece side as well so predictions graham for saturday ah what the hell 3-1 aberdeen i love it i love it i love the option it's completely against everything i've just said but why not i'm gonna go miserable nil nil draw i just (laughs) i just don't see us getting nil it's st johnston it's what they do it's what we do against st johnston they're the worst games of the season to watch um, no, no, every day of the week. Come on, you Reds. So that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for our exclusive interview with the one and the only Lee Richardson. And to play us out, this is Audio Kicks with their single, Grow. Audio Kicks return to the live stage this Friday evening. That's the 17th of September at Drummond's in Aberdeen, supporting Dead Rabbit. Doors are 8pm, entry £7. Go check it out and check out Audio Kicks on Twitter at Audio Kicks. And here's all your kicks with Grow.
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Aberdeen Gas Services. Aberdeen Gas Services can take care of all your boiler and central heating concerns, including boiler servicing, repair and installation. As Wooster Bosch accredited installers, you can sleep safe in the knowledge that your new boiler has been installed to the highest of standards, backed up by an extended 12-year parts and labour guarantee. Contact Aberdeen Gas Services today for a free quote on 01224 734 646 or visit their website at www.aberdeengasservices.co.uk. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. We're delighted to continue our series of exclusive interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. And when we started out this podcast, one of the first names we had on the list of people we were dying to speak to was this man. Signing from Blackburn Rovers in 1992, his stay in the Northeast was a relatively short one, but a memorable one. The phrase cult hero was designed for this man. It's the one, the only, Lee Richardson. So hello and good evening, Lee Richardson. Welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. Good evening. Lee, first of all, thanks for taking the time to join us. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm pretty good for, uh, for someone in his early 50s, you know, can't complain. <laughs> so Lee, we spoke about this before, obviously we started recording and everything, but when we set out on this journey with the podcast, you were one of the very first names that we penciled in that we'd love to get on the show. So we're absolutely delighted to have you on. And I know when we spoke before, you were maybe a bit dubious about perhaps the the level of regard with which you're still held with the Aberdeen support. And I forwarded you that um, that web shop, the guys down at First Dawn's match with the Rico t-shirt in the kind of AFAB format. So hopefully that's an example of just exactly how how highly held in regard you are still by the Aberdeen support. So we're delighted to have you on. And we'll just start at the beginning. And that's where all good stories begin, isn't it? So born in, uh, you were born sorry, and grew up in the West Yorkshire town of, of Halifax. Now, was football always your kind of first sporting love would you say yeah well firstly thank you for that i mean i, I do appreciate it it's uh, not something i take uh, lightly so it's a, it's a it's a big honor still to be remembered but uh, yeah my football um yeah football journey started in halifax i suppose i'm still here 50 years later i kind of gravitated around with uh, halifax when i moved back from aberdeen just because uh, it's fairly convenient uh, for for different you know the, the other clubs that I was after after Aberdeen um, but yeah just uh, grew up in a kind of a, a sort of an out of town um, location quite rural lots of fields and playing fields and uh, we had quite an eclectic um, mix of of lads or you know, many lads who, who played football. All a little bit older than me, you know. We had, you know, Italians, Irish, Ukrainians, Canadians, believe it or not, um, and uh, Italians. We, we used to knock around together, play football a lot. So it was, it was kind of from a very early age. I was, you know, playing with, with kind of boys older than me or lads older than me. You know, so that I think that was quite a, quite important actually. Besides, in the absence of an academy as such that there are now, that was my kind of local academy. You know. Were Halifax your boyhood club um, or were your loyalties divided considering there are some pretty big clubs in and around Yorkshire? So I've got two brothers, my elder brother Nick 
When I go when we're really young, so before uh, Halifax Town came into the uh, came into the kind of vocabulary, my elder brother Nick. I remember funny we had a there's a picture of us somewhere with these obviously replica kits and things. These days are a massive business, but in those days you'd do well to get your hands on anything that looked like a kit. So I remember my brother Nick had a, an all red kit, Liverpool kit. Uh, he was a bit of a Liverpool fan. And I toyed with, um, I had a, an all-white Leeds kit. Um, and my younger brother had a, a Wolves one, I remember that. Uh, that's how it, one Christmas, that's what we were all bought a kit. And that's how it kind of transpired. Uh, so I had a sort of flirtation with Leeds and, believe it or not, Manchester United for a, for a year or two. But nothing serious, I don't think. Uh, and then when I got to probably the age of about 10 or 11, my uh or maybe a little bit younger, my dad, who was who's uh, always supported Halifax Town and still does, um, used to take us down to the the Shea, which is the local, uh, which is the you know the, the club's ground. And uh, so my first football matches were Halifax Town, or professional football matches were earlier Halifax Town games. And um, yeah, it was good. It was like you know, in, again in those days you could walk around the stadium, you know, especially at Halifax Town. There weren't that many people there, so. You could kind of watch the game from one position uh, early on and then walk around. And that's what a lot of people used to do. They used to start off, depending on which way the, the, the team were kicked, you know, which which uh, end the, keep, the team was shooting into, you would have like this nomadic uh, drive of fans walking around. I always remember that. Obviously, not allowed to do that sort of thing these days, but that was uh, that was my early uh, early experience of professional football, yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit different to these days. If you've ever tried standing in your seat instead of sitting in, you'll get into enough trouble for that. Uh, following on from when you were you know, playing football with um, guys of various ages, can you remember or maybe pinpoint a particular time where you thought you might actually have a crack at being a professional footballer? And when that came about, were you always a midfielder? Um, yeah, I think I think I probably was always a sort of a midfielder. Um, when I, st- I started playing for a local junior team called St Mary's, where I was raised a Catholic, you know, Catholic schools, went to Catholic schools as a, in junior school and secondary school. So I played for the school teams and then a, a, and a local team called St. Mary's. I, I do seem to remember, I always tended to end up playing in, in midfield. Um, my old man was pretty, um, I suppose, good in one way of, of setting expectations. And uh, whenever I speak to him about it, he would say, oh, you know what, it's t- such, a, such a difficult career, such such a hard Task to become a professional footballer. It's very unlikely, you know. Probably wanting to encourage me to do better at school. I always had a strong belief. I, you know, wanted to. I had a strong desire, should I say? And I, and I do remember when um, my first year. I was quite fortunate because the the year I became eligible to be a, an, a what in the old days used to be called an apprentice footballer. Um, the government's white uh, youth training scheme kicked in. So I I was the first. That was the first year. Um, and I think there was five five of us at Halifax who were offered white youth training schemes, uh, which were paid for by the government. So, um, but that obviously was a, st- a sort of a bit of a turning point because I knew I was, um, I must I must be okay, you know. And I think, um, and then not long after that, I, I would be training with the first team at Halifax. Yeah. So just jumping back quickly, Lee. I mean, obviously. When you signed your YTS at Halifax, were there any other clubs kind of sniffing around you at that point? And and if so, what made you pick Halifax Town? Yeah, there was, there was only really there was there was two actually. One was Bradford City, and one was Sheffield Wednesday. Bradford City 
um, was probably the strongest. And, and Sheffield Wednesday, I remember we played a game against Sheffield Wednesday, practice sort of like a friendly game. Um, and their chief scout was there. I remember he was he asked the coach, the head coach about uh, the youth coach about me, and um, he kind of warned you know he kind of warned warned him off me. He said I'd sign, I think he I think he said I'd already signed a professional contract, which I hadn't done. But it was probably the best thing anyway. You know, it was it was a good it was uh, probably a good thing I did start at Halifax in many ways. You got to remember football was completely different back then. I mean, there were there were no academies really. Um, the the scouting system was certainly there, but it wasn't it wasn't as uh, well established as now. Um, so yeah, I was just pleased that Halifax Town, um, you know, wanted me. And um, the the youth team that we had then was an under nineteen in, called Intermediate uh, League, and we actually won it one year. The year when I was sort of seventeen, we won that league, and we had uh, Leeds United, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, Sunderland. Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, Doncaster, Rotherham, all these teams were all either championship or even first division teams. And we at Halifax, we 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 won the league that year, which was a massive achievement. Uh, and two or three of us from that team obviously went on and, and had careers. So Lee, you you make your way through the ranks at Halifax and you make your way into your first, into the first team, um, being given your debut at the age of 17 in 1987. I think you've already said Halifax were in the old Division 4 at the time, which I guess is League 2 these days. So that must have given you like a real grounding. As you've said just there, football was a very different game, certainly in terms of physicality as well. That must have given you a real uh, a wake-up call what uh, senior football was going to be like. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've played one or two kind of... Again, there were some sort of obscure competitions. I think I presume the precursor to... To what became the Johnson's Paint, and then several of uh, sort of incarnations. I don't know what it's even called now. You know, they've changed it how many times. But I did play one or two games in that before I made my league debut. Um, but yeah, it was very much that. It was it was straddling the kind of youth football to to, to man's football. You know, um, and as a midfield player in those days, I think most um, most teams kind of played a four-four-two formation. There was there wasn't as much kind of coaching as I would I would probably I would say in terms of the way the games evolved. Um, it's very much become a coach-centric game um, to a degree, and to play as a midfield player was very much kind of an attritional you against your opponent battle, and you had to you had to physically get involved with the, your opponent. Otherwise, you would you know you quickly get sort of trodden on and. Um, most coaches, I think that was well, well, you know, it was just well established that you had to win the, in inverted commas, physical battle before mm-hmm. you could then start to, you know, to impose your kind of any, any kind of stylish football on the game. So, yeah, it was good for that in many ways. You had to learn to, to look after yourself, I suppose. I often look at the games now and, and I'm drooled with envy at the midfield players and how much uh, the game has changed to their, to their advantage, really. Uh, and I think lots of my my generation midfield players would all probably agree with me that they'd love to play uh, football now, which it seems to be very much a kind of design for midfield players, you know. Then, So after you impressed at Halifax, you racked up 56 appearances in two seasons, uh, finding the net four occasions, and then you make a £200,000 move to Watford, who were in the Division 2 and £200,000 in the late 80s, that's not an insubstantial amount of money. Before we move on to Watford, are we right in thinking that Liverpool were sort of snooping around for your uh, for your services? 
Yeah, so so we used to we used to play on a Friday night at Halifax, which was useful for a number of reasons. It opened up the weekend a little bit, but also um I think a lot of clubs used to come and watch um our games, you know, be it the fourth division teams we were playing against next or some of the scouts from the you know the the, the bigger clubs. Obviously with we had three or four of us all playing at the same time of a similar age group, uh, Wayne Allison. I mentioned a guy called Terry McPhillips, who was uh, at one time, I think he was a, the league's top goal scorer one season. Um, and one or two other lads. But um, yeah, I think Ron Yates was the chief scout of Liverpool at the time. I think he was very, he was a regular to the, to the Shea, a guy called Eric Harrison as well, who, who was the guy who sort of brought through the, um, you know, Beckhams and Nevilles. And he was, He's a local, uh, sadly died last year, but a local guy who I became friends with over time. But, you know, so there was plenty of scouts there every week. And um, I know that uh, we played a cup tie against Kettering, I think it was, uh, a replay at the Shea and uh, Kenny Dalglish came um, and subsequently found out he was there to watch, there to watch me. And I, I do remember it. it's really what's even more bizarre is that last weekend, my wife's 50th, we had a, a surprise 50th at a, a local rugby club. And, uh, this same rugby club is uh, where we, Halifax Town used to get changed uh, for a year or two when that, that final year I was there. And I was just there this last week. It's the first time I actually went upstairs where my old manager, Billy Air, used to have an office. And... Um, that's where he told me about uh, what that Watford had put a bid in for me, but he was really adamant he didn't want me to leave. And he was he, he said to me, "Look, if you stay here till the end of the season, uh, I guarantee you there'll be there'll be better clubs in for you than Watford." And Watford were top of the championship at the time. And I had an inkling that Liverpool were interested, but what I'd heard was that they weren't they didn't want to uh, pay as the, the money that Watford paid at the time was actually a record fee for a for a, a teenager, I think, and. Um, so I, I was just adamant that I wanted to. I, I was of the opinion that well, if I went to Watford and I did well, then my next move might be Liverpool. You know what I mean? So that's the sort yeah. of um, that was my thoughts on the matter. And I also was I had uh, senior players who would tell you that you've got to make the moves when you can. You never know; you might break your leg in training, which was you know a, a valid point. You can these kind of things do happen. Obviously, in terms of your time at Watford, did you find that to be a massive step up? in terms of quality from what you were used to at Halifax Town. That's, that's a two-division leap, I guess, at that point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we had a, a really big squad there. Well. It was, to be honest, it was a first, it was a pro, it was a first division squad. There's no doubt about it. We had guys like Paul Wilkinson, uh, Glenn Road, uh, John McClelland, who played for the Rangers, was, was there then. Uh, Gary Thompson, uh, Glenn Hodges, Rick Holden, who I'd followed from Halifax. So there was lots of guys who, you know, a lot of experience playing in the, the old first division, so what would be the Premier League now. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was a step up, there's no doubt about it, but not more, more physically, I think, I think it was, there was, I definitely, um, you know, felt that the game was a little bit quicker, there were players who were, who were quicker, sharper, um, there wasn't any more physically challenging, i.e., I, you know, challenges and things like that, but it actually suited me, and it was a little bit more time and space, um, and as long as you could, you could, play and pass the ball then you know you you were okay and you got opportunity to show show what you could do but obviously you were just playing against better quality so as is always the case at every level that you go you play at and you know it tends to be that you know the higher up you go the more likely it is that opposition strikers can punish you if uh, 
if you make mistakes and and that's what it used to feel like uh, you know whereas in at Halifax you'd play against teams and if they, they might get three or four chances a game and it took them maybe four or five chances to score a goal whereas in the the top end of the championship games you played they only needed a chance and it'd be you know you'd, you'd conceded a goal so that was the main sort of difference I noticed a little bit of a step up in quality Mm-hmm. And defenders as well who could pass the ball to you, you know. So your stay at Watford's a, it's a short one. You have one season there. You make 41 appearances across all competitions and you, you grab one goal. And at the end of that 1990 season, it's Blackburn Rovers who just finished the previous season in fifth place in the old second division. They make you their most expensive signing at that moment in time, taking you to Lancashire in a, in a move for a quarter of a million pounds. And you spent some time as captain of Blackburn during that first season, but it's a season of, of struggle, I guess, for Blackburn, eventually escaping relegation by just a, a couple of points. And then it's in January 1991 that Jack Walker takes full control of Blackburn and he starts to begin bankrolling the club properly. What was it like being at Blackburn at that point where Walker takes full control and it just turns, I guess, on a sixpence straight away? Yeah, it, well, it, I mean, I used to say it was like... Um... You know, before before Jack came in and before Kenny came, actually, it was we were always sort of slightly rag ass Rovers, you know, um, more than the sort of Blackburn Rovers polished Premier League team that they eventually came uh, became. Um, I actually believe I'm I'm fairly confident in saying that. I think Jack's money started to come in slightly before he officially took over, and I think my transfer was part was one of the first deals. I think maybe not even might even be in the first. We signed in a couple of other lads, one Bobby Mims, Bobby Mims, a guy called Steve Livingston and, and Martin Dobson for about a million pounds. So that that was before he officially came in. And I think people's eyebrows were raised by that. Um, Don Mackay, another Scotsman, was my the man, the guy who signed me. And um, my recollection was we we did, we did stay that year. I was the captain. We managed to, to sort of survive. It was a bit of a great escape. We needed uh, we needed kind of you know to win two or three of the last games and we did, and then I think it was the following season early on. I think it was, and I seem to remember it was September October time in my memory that, that Kenny actually came in because Tony Park so Don got the sack maybe four or five games into that season and Tony Parks you may remember who he he, um, he took over one of his first caretaker spells. I think we won seven on the trot. And that was one of the first times we actually played four five one. So I played in that kind of midfield three, and um, and we won seven on the trot. And so people were expecting Tony to get the job. Um, and then I remember going in. It was literally we played Plymouth Argyle. I remember. In fact, I watched it on YouTube the other day. We played Plymouth Argyle at home on the Saturday morning, and we'd heard some sort of rumours about Kenny. That you know, Kenny at least had been mentioned. But we were all kind of dismissed it. We, even then, it was so early, you know, it was kind of all so new. We just, nobody gave it a second thought, really. And then on the morning of the game, we kind of, we all arrived at the ground. And uh, again, these room, you know, people started sort of whispering and Kenny Daglish has taken over uh, with Ray Harford. And again, we were just sort of, you know, we thought people were just winding us up. And then uh, like an hour and a half before kickoff, lo and behold, the dressing room door goes up, uh, um, you know, opens and uh, Tony Parks walks in, flanked by Kenny and Ray Harford on the day of the game, you know, an hour and a half before kickoff. And so, so a few jaws hit the floor, and uh, can't even remember what was said, but I think he, Kenny, 
I think Kenny did so. Oh, no, actually, it was Bill Fox, who was the old chairman, came in and, in, and introduced everybody and said Kenny would be taking over, but Tony would be staying as his coach, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so we went out, we, I think we won the game 5-2, but that was the starting point of it. And then towards the end of um, that season, then it became... It was literally like like two you know be two players a week would be signed by us. This was the first kind of uh, introduction I think of this you know kind of the squad, the idea of a squad, and we ended up with a a really big you know big squad, and managed to to get up through the playoffs and uh, eventually after a sort of a bit of a wobble. But yeah, it was an interesting time and um, one I've got some regrets on because I you know probably should have stayed. I I, I probably could say that about all the moves I've had actually probably should have stayed a bit longer everywhere I've been uh, up until uh, up until maybe Oldham um, and that includes Aberdeen you know I should have probably stayed at Aberdeen for another year or two but I probably should have stayed at Blackburn as well for another year or two after the year after I left they won the Premier League for the you know so these are sort of decisions you make at the time but that was the that's my recollection of what happened with regards to Kenny coming in and Jack Walker as well So with uh, the arrival of we you kind of touched on the fact that was quite transformational uh, in terms of you know it's it's kind of Dalglish which is quite an achievement um, for for the club and then just with the the money being thrown around that must have been quite a unique situation to be in because I don't really think that had happened before you maybe just describe what it's like being a part of that yeah absolutely I, I mean I, fun enough it was um, I when I did my degree my, my degree an open university degree my first um, the first year I studied, um, I met a lecturer who was from Blackburn, and he was he was right he was writing a book around um, capitalism and uh, Marxism and football, and um, it, we were talking about that the, the kind of the Jack Walker moment was the you know was the, the moment where capitalists kind of you know uh, what what would you call them the bourgeoisie took over the game. Um, and it was really because he obviously that money transformed uh, everything really. Obviously, not long after that, obviously the Premier League was born, um, and the big city clubs obviously then transformed themselves over time. But he was the first money man, I think, from as far as I can remember, or serious money man that was really inflating prices and wages and all the rest of it. Um, and again, I didn't stay around long enough to maybe even benefit from that myself. Really, I was just keen to. Play and so that's why I wanted to. When Aberdeen came in, I was kind of. It was the first decent club that came in to 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 take me. That was the way I looked at it. You know, Aberdeen has always been a uh, a club that, as I was growing up, I always I always remember Archie McPherson uh, on uh, you know grandstand on on the Saturday doing interviews outside of Potodri. So that that obviously turned my head to to want to leave. But in terms of Blackburn at the time. Uh, Jack's money was getting thrown around all over, all over the place, and we, those those of us who were there at the time, I mean, I wasn't too I, at that stage. I wasn't so obsessed, or I wasn't so bothered by the money uh, at all. Really, I was more bothered about playing playing football. Uh, but I did. We did hear stories of some of the lads who were signed: David Speedy, Roy Wegerly, Alan Shearer, eventually, and the, the sort of sums of money that these guys were getting compared to those lads who had been there, uh, you know, from the start. It was it was. It was just one of those things. I accepted it uh, quite quite easily, but it was it was that sort of transformation from. And Kenny was the catalyst. As much as Jack's money was was pumping it in, it was really Kenny that was the major. I think Jack realised that 
he wasn't going to attract the Alan Shearers, the you know the players that they eventually attracted, without um, somebody like Kenny, who they weren't going to come to Blackburn ahead of Manchester United. So that was his main rationale behind uh, asking Kenny to come in. And he did feel when you were there that it was it, you were you were like ten green bottles. We said we used to joke that it was like ten green bottles. You know, you were just waiting for the to get kind of pushed off the wall for the next guy that came in. So. I managed to sort of find my way back into the team towards the end, but I, I just, I don't know, I just sensed that I'd be, it'd always be um, easy to leave to leave me out of the team or the squad compared to some lads that they've paid money for. That's the sense I got. Kenny was great, didn't said he didn't want me to leave and all the rest of it, but I just, I suppose as a player, and I still see it now in the lads I were, you know, players want to be feel like they're wanted and... Um, and that's certainly, I was starting to get the feeling that, not, not so much that I wasn't wanted, but I, I had to sort of jump through hoops, whereas some of the lads were, you know, they'd been brought in, so they were they were always going to get, get better opportunities. That's how it felt like at the time. You've kind of uh, led me into this path, which would be the final question, just on your, your Blackburn career, which was, do you look back uh, with regrets, given that they had a pretty successful run in the Premier League? I do only in the same way that I have regrets about leaving Aberdeen and about um, probably even leaving Halifax. Um, those are the three, the three clubs where probably um, probably should have stayed longer at Halifax. You know, probably should have just given it another six months. Who knows? They might have ended up at Liverpool, and and my career would have had a different trajectory. Um, similarly, at Blackburn, yeah, worked hard to sort of you know establish myself there. Uh, and actually, the process of re-establishing and constantly striving is actually something that you know should have should have risen to. I suppose as well when I, when I do look back, in fairness, in my own defence a little bit, I'd come from Halifax where you know I'd, I'd broken into the Halifax Town first team and got used to playing a lot of football at a relatively young age. Um, had I asked you know Dave Batty, someone who um, I'd not necessarily compare myself to, but he's someone who was the same age as me. His career trajectory uh, went on a different plane, I think primarily because he started at Leeds United. Um, and there's always somebody who I always kind of you know, compare myself favourably to as a player. But he he started at Leeds United. He didn't always, you know, hit it off there, but eventually managed to get himself in a team that, that won promotion to the, to, to the then League one, uh, Div- Division 1. And then obviously later down the line, he ended up part of a, uh, a premiership winning team with Leeds United. And then from on the back of that, had you know one or two uh, other good clubs and played for England. So I do think that, that that's relevant in that, you know, one thing that's really hit me since becoming, a, having been a coach and a manager and even now as a psychologist, how fine the margins are sometimes and how actually someone's belief in you, the opportunity to, to show what you, you, you know, show what you can do at certain key moments is, is massively important. And I, I thought it was at the time, uh, but then would sort of, you know, probably chastise myself and say, well, you're not, you know, if it's, if you're good enough, you'll make it. If you're not, you're, you're not. But sometimes it's actually about being given the opportunity. And there are dozens and dozens of players who get far more opportunities than some others. Um, and it's really interesting to see it now in that light and look back and go, wow, yeah, it was it was a couple of near misses there. But So I, I look back more philosophically than I did maybe when I just finished. 
because I was probably more harsh on myself then than looking back now on the back of being a coach, being a manager, working as a sports psych in and around it and seeing how sometimes it is just about, you know, the manager has, shows a bit more faith in a player for a reason that's not really even sometimes to do with football. I think I would uh, speak for all Aberdeen fans, Lee, when I say that we're certainly glad that you decided to move on. When you decided to leave Blackburn, was there much in the way of interest from other clubs at that time? I kind of made my mind up, you know, that pre-season at Blackburn, I was maybe going to give it a go, but I was definitely, like I say, I was still probably sulking from being left out. Um, I remember pre-season was pretty tough. Alan Shearer joined us. We were we did a pre-season trip to Ireland, and um, I don't know. I just I just remember it was a massive squad, and I don't know how. It came about, well, Duncan may have thrown me or something, but I did get wind at the Aberdeen, and it was Falkirk as well, I think. It was Jim Jeffries who was the manager at Falkirk. Uh, they'd sort of made inquiries because I wasn't, you know, maybe seen as a, a regular, because of people like Duncan being kind of chipped away from, from Blackburn. There were one or two of the lads who were left as well. There were probably quite a few teams um, sort of making inquiries. I probably then at some point said to, to Kenny that I wanted to leave. Um, and at that stage, it was Aberdeen and, and Falkirk, who were the clubs who had, who had kind of made approaches to, to Blackburn anyway, which I don't think was initially accepted. But then me having said I wanted to leave, then Kenny sort of looked at me and said, right, well, OK, fair enough. If you want to go, I'll, I'll try and help you. And he actually, I remember he actually, he actually phoned Harry Redknapp, who was at uh, West Ham at the time because I'd said I wanted to leave and I don't know what he basically then sort of said well look I'll if I can get you I'll speak to a couple of people I'll know and I'll you know put a good word in for you sort of thing so you know, I know he, I definitely know he did that um but Aberdeen would have you know and I don't think Harry had seen me play so so that was never going to happen but um obviously I spoke to Duncan and he you know he spoke very highly of the of not just the club but the the, the city um, and I saw, I just had a good feeling. I think that it was like, well, if I went up to Blackburn, and this is the, this is the start point, I suppose, of the regret of leaving Aberdeen too early. Was I had it very much in my mind. I wanted to do two seasons at Aberdeen, get myself established, do as well as I could, and then come back down and sign for a bigger club down in England, somebody better than that, than Blackburn. That was my uh, that was the plan. So I had it kind of fixed in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. Um, went up, flew up to to Aberdeen just to meet Willie and to just get a sense of it. I was, you know, I didn't want to just, I didn't, it wasn't a case of just signing straight away. I came up to Pitodri, watched a little bit of a reserve game. I remember big Alex was playing in midfield against, uh, might have been someone like Partick Thistle or someone, obviously struggling. Um, so I, I knew, I knew in terms of, I knew in terms of depth of squad, there wasn't much. In terms of midfield depth, you know, if, if Big Alex was having to play in midfield, yeah, and and obviously just like the sense of the place and the history of the club with it's obviously Fergie and and Willie, I like, you know, I was impressed with Willie, kind of, you know, intense character. I don't mind an intense character, and um, yeah, I was just so focused on wanting to uh, be successful at Aberdeen that, and it is easier sometimes when you're a player just to get that one track focus in mind. Um, but it was with this sort of intention, I signed a two-year contract and I remember sort of, you know, promising myself that that's all it would be because I wanted to give myself just that two years to 
to do well enough to then get a, a better move back, ideally, into, well, you know, hopefully into the Premier League back down here that had just started, you know, at maybe a different club other than a, than a Blackburn Rovers. So when it came to renegotiating with Willie, I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't even speak to him. I said to him straight away, I don't, I'm not, in, not I'm not interested in because I don't, I love the place, I love you, I love the, I love the club, I love everything, but in my mind, I had it in fixed in my mind that I was going to do two years and then I was going to see what was going on back down in England. But I knew as soon as I, the literally day one of training at Oldham, I was like, I've made a big mistake. We'll touch on that in a, later on, I think, uh, Lee, if that's okay, but Eventually, 16th of September, 1992. That's the day you signed for Aberdeen. So this episode's going to go out pretty much right on. And this will make everybody on this call feel really old now. That'll be 29 years to the day pretty much since that happened. You kind of touched on already about the fact that you kind of wanted a new challenge and everything. But did Willie have to do much to convince you to make the move to Scotland? And kind of what sort of role did he envisage you having within his team? I think he basically convinced me that I was, you know, I was going to be part of the team and, and the old chief scout at Aberdeen at the time, I think it was definitely called Jimmy. Jimmy, I forgot his second name. I think it's Jimmy Casson, who'd watch me when he came to watch Duncan for Blackburn and obviously I was playing in the same game. So I think he went back to William and said he'd seen a midfield player really like that was me. And one of the things that I seem to remember Willie saying he wanted a midfield player who could play but also and compete but also someone who would drive with the ball, um, which I think I used to like to do. Um, and I always remember him thinking, yeah, he, he knows he knows the way I, I like to play. So that's a good start. Um, and again, I knew that just from oh Duncan had took fill me in on the who the you know who the squad was and you know the, we had some good players. Again, looking at some of the YouTube clips I've seen recently, we were a good side. You know, we we could play. Uh, we could play. I think we were we were very good. Um, and so yeah, I just I just had this sense that oh that was I seem, seem to remember Duncan saying you know we we could be, if we got if you come up we could really challenge for, for to win something. And I was like okay yeah fair enough that sounds good. We're gonna try and win the league and stuff up there. That'd be that'd send me in good stead. So that's what it was. I didn't take much convincing. It wasn't. Um, I just wanted to play. I just wanted to play football. I wanted to play regularly. Um, and I thought the rest would take care of itself, you know. It sounds like you knew quite a bit about Aberdeen in terms of its history. You know, it's the success with Ferguson was still pretty fresh in the memory. Um, so it sounds like, yeah, you you know, it wasn't like a completely different move. It doesn't sound like there was the kind of perhaps tin pot farmers league uh, attitude towards Scottish football that you might get from uh, some members of the uh, English population these days on Twitter, especially. But um, yeah, obviously. Willie Miller, you know, he was, a, he was a club legend, but from speaking to both Theo Tenkat and Duncan Shearer, I think they seemed to both be in agreement that Duncan was, that sorry, Willie was trying to find his feet as a manager. Did you get that impression as well at the time? Yeah, probably. I think that's probably fair. I mean, I think I think any manager in the first job, it's it's it, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to you know they're going to not get everything right. He was definitely maybe. A chip off the old block, so to be. I seem to remember there wasn't a game where he didn't uh, go puce at half time and have a scream at somebody. But I was used to that anyway, a little bit from being down the road. And there was plenty of managers down here that would would be you know would be very animated and uh, vocal at half time and things. So it wasn't something that bothered me. Um, I liked Willie. I thought you know he knew the game and um, 
Yeah, I just think at times we lost again another game I've seen highlights of that was pivotal for my in my mind was we lost at home to Rangers one nil one I think it was a February uh, and Andy Gorham played played in goals and had a blinder and I remember that was a game where had we have won uh, I think we got it would have got us closer to them uh, and I think the momentum might have shifted in our favour but we were we were just a little bit young I think a bit lacking in experience against you know what was a very experienced Rangers team in, in the cup finals and in the league games they tended to all manners a little bit and that used to frustrate the hell out of me but you know we were certainly as good a football side as them we used, we used to play we could play as well as them it's just uh, in those key moments we weren't quite we didn't have enough nows to win games and that's difficult for a manager to instill in a, a young team I don't think I don't really think that um you know, you could really criticise Willie too much. I think he was also, you know, you maybe had someone like Big Alex who was probably coming to the end of his career. You know, we we were maybe two or three good players, better, you know, better players away from actually really challenging ranges. And then, you know, who knows? And that's, that's I think that's a challenge, isn't it, for Scottish teams, apart from Rangers and Celtic. It's just, it's no coincidence that they tend to be at the top because if you look at their squad's, uh, over the years, on average, they tend to have better squads of players. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair assessment. And on the, the topic of squads, what was the first impression of the squad when you joined? Uh, it must have been good to have a familiar face uh, in Duncan Shearer, but I was just looking to understand what you thought when you arrived. Obviously, it's a different club. We had some really good footballers. I, I just That's the one thing I remember. I think, um, you know, obviously you had likes of big, uh, big, uh, big Alex and then you had Gary Smith, who was a really good footballing centre-half. Young Stevie Wright, who, who was quick and um, would get up and down up and down the wing. There was some, some just good players. Paul Mason was a really good footballer who always, you know... You, one thing I remember about Aberdeen was that you, people around me, like Brian Grant, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Mason, uh, Jim Bett, Loved Jim Bet as a player, you know, tended to pass the ball when you wanted it passing. There's a lot of players who keep hold of the ball too long and don't pass it. And uh, we had we had a, a team of players who could shift the ball. And when we were at our best, like I say, I've seen as recent, I've seen some of the footage, and we shift the ball as well as most teams now do. So that that's interesting to see that. Um, yeah, we had other different, you know, G E and Jess obviously is quality player. And people like Big Mix who would, would give us a bit of an outlet and a difference about us and obviously Duncan. But um, yeah, we just had good players. You have Theo Tenkat, you mentioned, who was, I think his mentality as a Dutch ball player was just not quite suited to to probably Willie, if, he, if he's honest. Um, I liked Theo, he was a real character. Um, and he was a good footballer, but just tended to be a little bit static at times and you needed... You know, you need to you need to be in the well. Even back then, what was sorry, twenty nine years ago, the modern type of football was evolving. Then, you know, you needed to run, run nonstop. We'd had the you know, the back pass rule uh, transform football. I always say this that once once the keeper couldn't you know do keepy ups and keep the ball for five minutes, the tempo of the game drastically started to change, and um, that has been ever since. So. So there was lots of good players. There's lots of good footballers, um, and like I say, we just um, we lacked that little bit of now. So when we played in some of these big games, even the even the Torino game, um, when you look at that, the Italians were just 
more savvy than us, a bit more experienced, a bit fitter than us as well, to be honest. But yeah, we just didn't quite in the key games, we didn't quite have enough. So you make your you make your Don's debut just three days after signing. Uh, you come off the bench for Theo Ten Cat. It's a two 0 home victory against Partick Thistle, and it's a hell of a debut, uh, Rico. You're on the pitch for about thirty seconds, I think, and you win the ball. As I recall, you win the ball on the south stand touchline, fine tackle in the midfield. You galloped off the left hand, the inside left channel, little cut back, knocked the ball inside to Brian Grant, and Brian Grant scores probably. I was going to say his finest goal for Aberdeen. I reckon it's probably his finest goal of his career. It's a 30-yard rocket in the top corner. Do you remember much about that one? Yeah, I do remember it. Yeah, I remember it. Like I say, I remember vaguely coming off um, coming off the bench. I did, did I play? Was that did it? Was that my first game? And then the se- semi-final against was Celtic was the next game, was it? Yeah. yeah. I was on the bench again for that. Yeah, no, I do remember. Um, I remember watching again thinking, just get, just get me on because I know I can... Can sort of influence this game, uh, which I managed to do. Um, um, you know, granted, yeah, it seemed to me, yeah, past, I, just, I mean, I just, it's just your job. I used to enjoy playing with Brian, so um, glad I could set him one up. He used to, uh, well, again, I remember he was somebody who just, he gave me the ball when I wanted it, not, he didn't hang on to it, he just passed it to me, and then I could, that always gave me an extra split second then to get my head up and see what was around me, so I was, I did enjoy playing with Brian, I must say. I think Brian Grant is easily probably one of the most underrated footballers that Aberdeen have had in the last 30, 40 years, unquestionably. You've already referenced this particular match, but four days after your debut against Partick Thistle, uh, you came off the bench at Hamden as we beat Celtic 1-0 in the League Cup semi-final. What were your first impressions of Scottish football compared to what you had been used to in England? Well, the, the interesting thing for me was, and you know, over the years, it, I don't know, how to what extent this has stayed the same, but definitely in those ta- in those years, we, you had three three main teams, as, and we were one of them, I think, uh, who could compete certainly at the at the level of the Premier League in England. We might have struggled with the squad size. We might have, if we'd have had a couple of injuries, play. If you if you could have, you know, let's say imaginary, hypothetically, created a British league or at least a Scottish English league. Premier League, then you, you would have three teams that would have, I think, competed to lesser or greater degrees. The Rangers side that we talked about, they would, they would, they would compete no problem in the Premier League of that era, and probably Celtic would too, because they had obviously players like um, John Collins, Paul McStay, um, I think even Charlie Nicholas still still playing when I, uh, towards the end, more Johnson as well. So they they had some decent players. And I think both those, the, the old firm teams would have comfortably competed at, at the Premier League down in England. We would have, I think, done okay, um, but we would have been probably uh, handicapped slightly by the size of our squad. We had, seem to remember, we had like 16, 17, you know, good players where you probably need 20, 22, 23 to compete uh, in, in England at that level. Yeah, I think we we played four times a year when when I first went over there. We played Rangers and Celtic. Whenever we played those those two, it was a really tough game, and the level of the game was as good as a a Premier League game for me. It was there was no difference. Um, and then you had maybe Hearts, Dundee United, um, you know, maybe Hibs, but definitely Hearts and Dundee United who were, um, yeah, would 
would give you a good game, would be hard to beat. But you know, we'd always fancy ourselves against them, you know. Um, and I seem to don't seem to remember losing too often. Although Dundee United beat us in one of the sem- uh, in the semi final one year, I remember. But that was down to our complacency more than that they were better than us, you know. So that was always the case then. But I think I, my my sense is that the the Premier League in England has gone that way a little bit with the, you know, in comparison to the Scottish Premier League now. Um, I don't know whether that's contentious and controversial, but I do honestly think that that era, there was no, you know, Rangers could have competed. In fact, I think either the year after I was there or even the same year I was there, I think they, they beat Leeds in the European Cup uh, Rangers comfortably. And it was, you know, they, it was like a, they cruised it. And, um, and Leeds had either won, yeah, Leeds must have won the Premier League in England. So, you know, that that, that showed you that at that time, Rangers, Celtic and ourselves, we were definitely competed. So from that point um, in the semi-final, you become just a regular fixture in the starting lineup for Aberdeen. Um, but that then changes at the League Cup final against Rangers, where somewhat out of the blue, you're dropped to the bench. Um, and even though you did replace Roy Aitken after just 25 minutes, did that like that hurt to be to be dropped for another final? It's, I guess it's kind of same old stories as you know Blackburn, the playoff game with Leicester. I've actually forgotten that. You just reminded me. It stinks. No, I'm joking. Um, no, I, I think to be fair, I seem to remember that was. I almost expected it because I think that was Willie showing a bit of loyalty to to Roy. Um, so I kind of again, I, I think I was. That wasn't as painful as getting dropped. In the cup final, in the playoff final for for Blackburn, uh, I seem to remember thinking, well, you know what, fair enough. I've only been here a few weeks. Roy's been here, you know, a bit of season or whatever it was. He's the player coach. I think he was at the time. So I kind of thought, you know, maybe maybe that's um, fair enough. But yeah, and I remember coming on uh, fairly early in that game. Um, just about remember, and it's a long time ago, but. No, it was it wasn't as big a blow as as um as missing out on the Premier League uh, on the playoff final. Um I'm not to say I did I want I would have wanted to play, but I kind of probably understood that the team had qualified through without me and therefore, you know, fair dues give uh, give the guys who've, who've been involved in that run uh, the starting uh, you know the starting berth, so to speak. And you want to talk about things that stink. Of course, we uh, we lose that game uh, to Gary Smith on goal deep into extra time and Rangers win 2-1. Uh, do you remember what this mood was like in the squad, you know, especially having come so close against, as you said, a, a very good Rangers team? I, I mean, I can't, if I'm honest, really remember, but I would imagine we would be very, you know, be very low. I do get, I get you know, the sense and remember that there was a des- there was a sort of a desperation to kind of, you know, beat Rangers whenever we could. You know, maybe that's that's part of the problem. Maybe, maybe in the Dandy Don era of uh, Fergie, you know, there was a there was a little bit more carefree when we played against Rangers. But yeah, I think we will have been uh, massively disappointed. There's a lot of young, young lads in that that group as well, um, and it won't necessarily help the belief that we could beat them. You know, the more you lose to a team more that reinforces potentially beliefs about whether you can beat them or not but um it didn't I didn't seem to think at the time that it was a you know major it was something that shouldn't inspire us to just want to do better next time which is, that would be the 
that would be my approach to it. It'd be like, you know, well, that's gone now. Let's get on with the next game and, and the next opportunity when we get it to to try and beat Rangers, you know. I guess that's interesting then, Lee, because obviously after the disappointment of the League Cup final defeat, you get reinstated back to the starting lineup pretty much. Um, and the Dons go on a run then of 15 games unbeaten across all competitions. Uh, you grabbed your first goal for the club at Dens Park, a late winner. Um, but that run included such memorable uh, scuddings of Partick Vissel, 7-0, Hearts, 6-2, and Airdrie, 7-0 as well. And you were never present during that run. You were stewarding the midfield alongside the likes of Brian Grant, uh, Jim Beck, we spoke about, and Paul Mason as well. And for a lot of Aberdeen fans of a particular vintage, and when I say that, I basically mean us. This uh, this period is probably one of the most memorable in terms of the quality of attacking football that, that we've seen. I mean, the, the Dons racked up 111 goals and competitive fixtures that season. That must have been just great fun to get to play in that sort of environment. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think that's what I'm saying. I, I, I again going back to you know these these YouTube clips, which I'm very grateful for now because that you know again going back to difference in times. We the the TV footage was just not the same back uh, back then. Though T, TV coverage should I say, uh, should I say. So a lot of the old footage is all a bit grainy and a bit, you know, a bit obscure. Um, so I have, uh, over the last sort of six months and through lockdown, uh, become uh, aware of, of some of these uploads that people put up there. And um, so I have watched a couple of the Aberdeen games. I think the Heart, the Hearts game you mentioned where we beat them, I think it was 6-2 and Partick Thistle. Yeah, I think I was, we, I, I seem to remember we beat, we beat them one night where we, it was it was abandoned. I think the game was abandoned, and then we had to go back down on the Tuesday, and we beat them seven 0 or something. And we got abandoned at two or three 0 and then we went back down and beat them seven. But we just had a lot of good, you know. I think we had a, we were a good counter-attacking team. I think we we that that's my looking at the team now, looking at the way we played. You had the likes of Paul Mason playing out wide, um, you know, Ian Jess, Scotty Booth, even who could. Scotty was obviously quick and could get in behind defenders. And um, yeah, we used to, we used to, I think, I seem to remember we used to spring forward quite quickly. Stevie Wright, there's a fullback, used to get on, you know, get on his bike and get beyond teams. And we'd, we'd play quick passing football through teams. And, um, you know, some of the, some of the footage of some of the goals, it's kind of one and two touch passing that was too quick for the defense of the opposition. And, and we, uh, we punished them. And it was, it was good to play in at the time. And again, like I said earlier, you know, I think we would have we would have been competitive down the road playing playing in England because I know there would there'd be teams at that time playing in England who probably weren't as good as us. Uh, it's a shame we couldn't win something. I think that was that would be a, a year where if we'd have won something, that would have probably spurred us on the following year, and that momentum and that belief would have possibly snowballed. That was my opinion at the time. The second, the first season, sorry, is kind of famous in uh, in Aberdeen folklore because we finished second in, in all three competitions. You know, we ultimately finished runners-up to Rangers in the league, finishing nine points behind. But the team does find its way to the Scottish Cup final. Uh, we beat Hibs 1-0 at Tynecastle in the semi-final. And then, yeah, again, it's, it's Rangers in the final. And you talked about the kind of, to how you know exuberant how desperate people are Aberdeen fans are to beat Rangers in any game but especially a cup final you start the final we're 2-0 down at half time you are able to grab a goal 30 minutes to go but 
you know, the comeback doesn't the comeback doesn't materialize. And again, we finished runners up. And Duncan Shearer talked about this feeling like a real missed opportunity. Um, what can you remember from that game? And um, can you just like any explanation why maybe just the team weren't at it that day? I think I've spoke about this before. Then genuinely noticing a little bit of a heightened anxiety in around the, the dressing room. Maybe, maybe I was, but I definitely noticed it in my teammates, some of the younger lads. And it might have been that expected uh, that heightened expectancy that this is our final chance to win something. Um, you know, we've not won anything of the season for rain. And if you think of it, if you flip it on its head. And you think of it from a Rangers perspective, they've already won two, you know, they've already won two competitions. This one's going to be the final polishing, you know, the final kind of polishing it off in terms of the full, um, the full hit, you know, for their trophy cabinet. So the pressure was all on us, really, um, to try and win some, try and win it. And I think I do remember it just didn't feel right in the in the within the group. Um, and obviously, we couldn't afford to do, for it not to be like that. I seem to remember we missed a good couple of chances early doors as well. So I, I seem to remember we very rarely got in front against Rangers. The only time I remember getting in front against them was when I got sent off or something and nothing. And we won the game even without me on the pitch. So that's probably moving. It was my fault. Uh, but um, we just weren't right as a, as a group of players. We weren't, shall we say, in the right mindset. It wasn't we weren't up for it, it's, it's that we were too up for it. That's probably the, the more appropriate explanation is we've gone over the top, as I would say, we're over-aroused and not quite in the in a place of kind of flow where your best football happens. Um, and we could still, I mean, that, like as, as I said before, the February game where we, we lost 1-0 and played, played them off the park. You know, we could have still played them off the park in the cup final and got beat. That's the type of team... Rangers were, we'd have probably been better off just grabbing a scruffy win. Like my goal was obviously a, a bit of a fluke against uh, Andy Gorham and that's probably what we needed. Uh, if we'd have kept a clean sheet and scored with that goal, that would have been, uh, we'd be having a different conversation now, wouldn't we? So such is life. We'll take it back to a slightly lighter mood and I think it's fair to say you made... We're not too, we're not too down about it. It's only 29 years ago, Graham, isn't it? <laughs> well, we are Aberdonians, we have to be doing so we'll, we'll take it back to a lighter mood and I think it's fair to say you made an instant impression uh, on the Aberdeen support during the season and uh, certainly found your way into the hearts of even the, the coldest Aberdonian. What was it about you as an individual and a player do you think endeared you to the support? I would, I would like to think it was the way I played, you know, probably, again, going back to that era, that generation of midfield player, you had to tackle... You had to put your foot in. You had to work hard. Uh, and if you could play and, you know, uh, pass it and, 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 you know, help the team play play well, then, um, you know, then that's what I thought a good midfield player should be. So if that, if that would describes me, then I would, I would imagine that anyone who, who likes to watch football would like to see that in, in their midfield players. I think most supporters... In my experience, I I did feel like most of the time I gave you know 100 and the old cliche, 110 percent. Um, I certainly did. Or I thought I did. Maybe not on every occasion, but certainly um, mostly would would give my all for the for the win, and uh, work hard for it. You know, I think as well. I'd probably, in fairness, again to the Scottish game at the time compared to the English game, 
again, we, we've just got more quantity. Certainly in those days, it was more of a quantity thing than anything. Probably now there's probably a little bit more of a quality gap than there was then. But when you've got the more quantity, then there's obviously more competition. So you're used to, you're used to having to perform at a level more regularly. Whereas coming into the Aberdeen team at the time, like I say, it was very much a sense of, you know, we played Partick Thistle, Kilmarnock, uh, St. Johnson, you know, whoever was in the, whoever had been in there, Adrian was one, one you mentioned. These were teams that we, we should beat and did beat quite easily and comfortably. And there was only a few games of seat or a few teams in the league that would make it more difficult. So I think one of the challenges was actually to keep your standards up against those teams, which I think I was always keen to sort of get the lads to do. And I think that was something Willie was good at, actually, was trying to get the players to, to not be complacent in those games when we, uh, you know, we know that we should win. It's not always an easy task, actually. It's like a, you know, certainly in a lot of it's psychological, but so when expectancy becomes, you know, over the top beyond sort of resources in the team, then that's where it can be a challenge, which is probably what happened in that cup final. You know, it's probably probably a lot of fans went to that game thinking this has got to be our days. You know, it's got to be our day because we were, in theory, so close to Rangers. You know, law of averages, most people would, you know, wishful thinking if you might call it, but they would hope that it was going to be their day. So. We probably were aware of that and, and were able to handle it. Um, but going back to what people liked about me, I suppose it would be, yeah, um, combination of those things that I was a bit different, something new. The team was fairly successful when we played as well. That would have helped. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. And uh, an interesting answer, the, the law of averages doesn't always hold true if you're an Aberdeen fan, but maybe that's <laughs> for another day. So the, um, so the 93-94 campaign, you know, it starts... Reasonably well for Aberdeen, actually. You know, we're unbeaten in the first six games. You grab yourself a goal in a game against Clyde Bank in a 5-0 win in the second round of the League Cup. The first competitive match held in front of the newly constructed Richard Donaldstown, actually. But ultimately, this run comes to an end uh, with a League Cup quarterfinal defeat to, you guessed it, Rangers. Um, after extra time, Ibrox, um, another 2-1 defeat. And I think we're, I wanted to ask you this because it goes back to what you're talking about, the psychology of being a footballer. How does, again, losing to Rangers, how does that impact the squad in terms of their mental state? It must be kind of like a sort of feeling, no matter what we do, we just, we can't break this kind of glass ceiling that exists between us and Rangers. It used to frustrate the hell out of me. I mean, I, it was, again, going back to your point, Graham, it was beyond the, the, the law of averages and it shouldn't have been the case. I had my own theory at the time, which, you know, maybe slightly unfair on my, my teammates, but I do feel there was something in it in that Celtic and Rangers have just dominated Scottish football for for the most part of the last 50, 60, 70 maybe years. And I think that becomes an ingrained uh, belief that, you know, they're the, they're the best two teams. I always worried there was a little bit of an inferiority complex that we had that... Uh, is subconscious and not, it's not something you're aware of. It's just something that is kind of implanted because of you, because of the, the, the state, you know, the, the predominance of range and so the kind of, you know, generational pass down of that, that belief system almost. Uh, obviously, 
Sir Alex and that, that Aberdeen generation of players were able, had strong enough characters probably, I would say, in and amongst them all to, and not no little talent, but they had enough about them to actually break that, that spell for a period. You know, we came close. I think we came close, but not not as close as I'd like to have come. Um, yeah, we just didn't have the the right the right mindset, strategy, whatever it might be. We just came up short so many times that um, one of the factors has to be a sort of psychological thing, in my opinion. I think that's a good point, and yeah, it probably is there whether we want to own up to it um, or not. So maybe move on to the 93-94 the campaign that gave you your first experience of European football. So unfortunately, you missed the trip to Iceland um, as Aberdeen ran out 3-0 victors over Valour, but you returned to the team for the return leg with Aberdeen scoring another four uh, without reply to advance 7-0 on aggregate. So from a, a personal point of view as a player, was that a, a kind of box ticked, if you like, in terms of the fact that you actually got to play European football? And do you still think it's something that can attract players from England to come to Aberdeen. You know, even now we've touched on the disparity and maybe the trajectories of our relative top flights, but European football is something Aberdeen can offer and there aren't that many players, generally speaking, that will get to a, a club in England that can offer that. Yeah, I mean, starting with that, I've always it's always something that's intrigued me really about Aberdeen as a club. Um, given the statistical potential of qualifying for the Champions League, it's always surprised me that nobody's actually looked at Aberdeen and gone, well, actually, um, if you could manage to win the league one year in Scotland, then you, you're, you're straight into the Champions League or at least into the qualifying rounds, if I'm not mistaken. But down here, you know, you've got to get into the top four is, is you know, there's, that's no... Well, winning, winning a championship in Scotland is no easy feat, but... What I'm trying to say is the amount, if you look at the amount of money that's spent on teams and squads to try and finish even in top six, top ten in the Premier League, uh, it always has kind of sort of baffled me how someone's not gone, actually, um, you know, we could quality, if, if you want to look at it completely Eurocentrically, we could win the league in Scotland every year and get into the, get into the, um, the Champions League. So that's always a, an interesting one. Um yeah, I mean, is it a draw? I think it probably is. I do think ultimately one of the, 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 the unless you actually have got that power to do that and actually really go for it and probably go to the next level, you, I think you probably still have a, a challenge to attract or compete with some of the teams down here for attracting players. But certainly for me, it was a yeah, it was a big it was a, a big thing. It was, I enjoyed the whole experience, even though it was only one year. It was. Um, I have played in European competitions since then that were not properly European. So we had a, something called the Italian Cup in England, Anglo-Italian Cup, which was basically like a, like gunfight at the OK Corral. It was amazing. Some of the some of the some of the stuff that happened there was like two and three set off. I mean, it basically became Anglo-Italian wars, and uh, you know it was some some again some amazing games where you'd be getting kicked to bits and. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, but no, it was great. It was. Uh, I, remember, I do remember that that period uh, quite vividly, and it was exciting to be playing against even the the Icelandic team you mentioned. It was still, 
you know, it's still European competition. Um, obviously, we may go on and talk about Torino, but that was that was a, a probably one of the better teams I've played against, actually, from my uh, from my recollection with, with Torino at the time. Again, who would, would compete easily in that English Premier League? You know, they would they would be up there at the top of the Premier League at that time with the players they had, and that team that beat us in over those two legs would have would have definitely been in the top four in England. You know, so so it was good to play against that sort of quality of opposition. Yeah, I mean, you just touched on it early. Obviously, the victory over Valour sets up that that tie against Torino, and I guess younger listeners. They won't necessarily be aware of this, but that was a Torino side that had won the Coppa Italia the season before. They'd beaten Juventus in the semi-finals. They'd beat Roma in the final. They were throwing money around like nobody's business at that particular time as well. And it's a memorable European night. First of all, in the Stadio della Alpe, the Dons race into a two-nil lead, uh, only twenty-four minutes on the clock, and then Torino eventually turn it around. They get a last-minute winner through Carlos Aguilar, which leaves the tie finally balanced at three-two. But the Dons have got those two away goals in the bag. Can you remember much about that away tie in Turin? Yeah, I was really ill. I um, I probably shouldn't have played. I was, I, I can't, I can't remember what I had. It was kind of some kind of flu virus or something. But Willie was really keen for me to play, and that, and I was like, you know, of course I'll play. It was probably a silly thing to do for a number of reasons, but I do remember really struggling. After about twenty minutes, I was blowing a gasket. It asked me, I was sort of tasked with uh, staying as close as possible to a little player called Benito Carboni, who was um, kind of a little jack-in-the-box um, number 10. Uh, quite hard to keep an eye on, but I spent most of the night just trying to do that. Um, and you're right, we started off really well, two counter-attacking goals, but I seem to remember... Oh, we, we let a really poor goal in just before half time, which we should have avoided. But, but they did sort of batter us over there, I must admit. I think if you look at some of the footage on that one, they, they, it could have, you know, it was 3-2, but it could have been sort of 5-3. Um, but yeah, we, if we'd have managed to keep keep in front for the home, like that would give us a better chance. But they were they were a good side. They had some really good players. Enzo Francesco, I remember, uh, Gaboni. Uh, was it Aguila? The guy who scored the, the winner, did you mention Aguila, was it? Uh, Carlos Aguilera. Aguilera, I think is his surname. Yeah. yeah. Hard, hard to pronounce name, but played. he was an international. They, they were a team full of internationals, I remember that, and there were some good players. And they were fit as well. I just remember they were, they were one of the fittest sides I can remember playing against. Maybe because I was ill as well, that probably didn't help. Uh, but I remember, yeah. And I was, to be honest, I was still, because did we play them the week after or would it be two weeks after? Uh, uh, it was a fortnight in those days. Yeah, yeah. But I remember being ill for a few days after that as well, that, get, that game. And um, yeah, it was a real test for us, I think. And we, we just came up short again. You know, we we got a great start in the first leg. But even to be 3-2 down wasn't the end of the world. And then obviously we came home and we managed to go get that, get the early goal back at Petodri. But again, conceded a couple of really poor goals, I felt, before half time, which basically you know, killed us from the tie. Had we again got to half time, these are sort of some of the, you know, you you realise looking back with the kind of experience you gain of how to close out games and, and, and you know, and be a bit more uh, savvy when it comes to winning games. We were certainly naive at times in those, those two international games. We were very naive. 
but again, you know, not not being used to play against that quality of opposition, and that's that's part of the problem. That's part of the issue. You know, you can only get better by playing against better players and playing with better players. Sometimes, some of the lads like myself, like Ian Jess, like Scotty Booth, like Gary Smith, Stevie Wright, we were always going to go elsewhere because, um, you know, there was always going to probably be better challenges ahead for us somewhere else. That's a good point, and we, we, we unfortunately see that to this day. Every time we do get hold of, whether it's a decent team or a couple of decent players, you can understand they're always one eye elsewhere. There's always a, there's always something bigger and better um, in, in, you know, uh, in their career, and that just seems to be where we are right now. So if we, we go back to the Torino match and we, we skip a couple of weeks where we're back at Pataudry, and certainly as fans, there's always something special about a European night at Pataudry. But I was just wondering if you can remember much about the atmosphere, that game in particular. Fabulous. One of the best that I remember playing in front of. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an electric atmosphere, I would say. It was, it was kind of... Um, We'd obviously narrowly got beat in the steady Alpi, so we still had a chance in the game. And really for us, it was about getting off to a good start and trying to trying to trying to make a goal early, which we did obviously with myself. Um, and the goal obviously is quite a special one, I suppose. It was the left footer. I think it's probably the first left footer. <laughs> probably the first left footer I'd scored up until then in my career. But um, I always remember just actually being more concerned with not swinging at it and missing and, and looking daft. But it was a really important goal for me in my career in many ways, um, well, mainly because it made me realise that up to then, I've been really, you know, uh, flawed in my thinking about shooting from the edge of the box, which still happens to this day. How many players think they have to smack the ball? So, you know, it's a bit like a golf... I always liken it to a golf swing or a you know, playing down the fairway, you don't necessarily have to screw yourself into the ground, hit a goal shot, you know, nice, you know, 150, 200 yards. And it's the same with the, with the striking of a football. If you concentrate more on technique, um, then the, the ball will do the work. And um, actually, as long as you get on target, it always looks like it's uh, been hit even harder than it actually was. But I just concentrated on technique and I remember just literally flicking my leg at it. Uh, as the ball kind of came back to me and it just uh, caught it sweetly and it went into the top corner. So from then on, when I came back down the road, after after then, it kind of stuck in my mind and then I scored a lot more goals back when I came back down to Oldham and Huddersfield from the edge of the box where I'd just literally pass it and it would go into the top corner or, you know, as long as I, as long as I've concentrated on technique. So it was a really um, kind of a penny drop moment for me when I scored that goal. But it was yeah, nice, to, nice to see it on this. It's, got quite a few views on uh, YouTube, hasn't it? So it's, it was a good goal. There's uh, quite a few views as an understatement. I'd also like to say the prioritisation of uh, power over technique. You've obviously seen me play golf then. I'm very much <laughs> a screw yourself in at the fairway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me too. Don't worry about that. So the um, the remainder of the 93-94 campaign, it's a very interesting one from an Aberdeen perspective. Um, they only lose six games in the league in total but draw somehow 21 times in 44 games. Really? And ultimately, this means that we finished second behind Rangers um, only by three points. So if I try and do the maths here, turn two of those draws into wins, and then we win the league. So I guess in retrospect, you know, I guess that's got to be another case of a season of just what-ifs. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I mean, you've... you've um... 
I'm gonna not, I'm not gonna be able to sleep tonight because of that. Yeah, I'm thanks for that. But that's uh, yeah, it would be interesting to see what would have happened if we had been successful. Would it? Would that process of us all leaving still have happened? Probably. I don't know. Maybe it would have done it again. I think there's almost a structural thing that has to change for me before Aberdeen could actually maybe, you know, realise its full potential as a football club. Referees. Yeah. Bastards. <laughs> it's impossible not to talk about them, Lee, um, in the context of your time at Aberdeen, um, particularly during that second season. And it, it always felt to me that you were absolutely targeted by referees in particular I remember you picking up a couple of bookings in quick succession at Easter Road against Hibs where even in today's game I don't think either of them are bookings let alone what you were allowed to get away with 29 years ago I mean just what was your impression of the referees here the standard of them and how much of a bearing did that ultimately have on you deciding you know maybe not to bother extending your state Aberdeen it was a fact I have to say I do remember that and the standard was poorer, you know, they were, there's no doubt about that. I can say that quite confidently now, kind of 30 years later, but they were, there was, they were, and actually I, I was naive though. I think I was really naive in terms of speaking to the press, really. I spoke, I did too many interviews probably, or I might not have done that many, but the interviews I did, uh, Willie did warn me about it. I think I'll, after the event, maybe, I, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, there was there was one or two interviews I seem to remember where the where I sort of had a go at rest basically, and that didn't go down well, obviously. And yeah, I mean, I, the one the one decision that sticks in my mind is that Rangers one where Charlie Miller, I think it was, who even now he would get booked for sort of diving, and I, I was I didn't actually touch, I, I just about touched him, but um, because I'd because I'd pressed and closed the ball down really quickly. And he jumped away from me and sort of rolled around. The referee just bought that I'd kind of poleaxed him and I'd hardly touched him. And uh, I got a straight red for that. So there was a few of them. And you're right, the Hibs one, I seem to remember. I can't even remember what happened, but I, I do remember I got, I got booked in quick success, which you could argue was probably my fault a little bit. I should have had enough, had some savvy in now to, to not go anywhere near anyone for the next five minutes. But it's always difficult, isn't it, when you're, your job is to try and win the ball back or compete, and then um, if that's taken away from you, um, so yeah, it was definitely my memories that the, my memory is is of of the standard of refereeing in Scotland when I went up there, being not as good as it was even in England, even though that probably wasn't great either. But there was definitely some some you know real um, contentious decisions that I certainly got fell on the back of a few times, and like you say. I think I got booked about 20 times up there. It would be something like that. It felt like my first tackle was a booking, uh, whereas other players could do different things and would get away with it. it. It must have been horrendously frustrating for you as well at the time because you're right, you, 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 you get this reputation, I guess, at that point of being booked and being sent off and stuff. And this perception will then appear about this is the type of player that Lee Richardson is. And it was so far removed actually from the truth. It wasn't like you were a know Terry Herlock running around the pitch two footing people into the sky all the time you you know you were actually a, a, a really classy midfielder who was not scared to put his foot in and was not scared to win the ball but that was not your game at all and it was I just remember even thinking at the time watching it that it was just this 
you know, really bad perception that kind of came out about you. And it must have been so frustrating for yourself from that perspective as well. Yeah, it was, I think. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, we spoke about it quite a bit. Willie and I and Roy Aitken as well. I think Roy, you know, Roy had, had similar experiences. And yeah, that's what I think that tribalistic sort of um, frisian, shall we say, that was there with all the fans didn't help it. You know, it, it, it seemed to me that it was always... Um, very vocal support up in Scotland and to the extent that I think referees felt under pressure to to make decisions that were not necessary. Um, they didn't necessarily cope with the, the kind of audience uh, impact. Um, and I was probably one who got the brunt of that as, as much as anyone. And yeah, it did affect me because eventually then I, I think it actually started to change my behaviour. I remember having a conversation with Willie um, after the sort of second or third suspension, I was, I then sort of started to not, not go into tackles, not not press quite as hard as I'd done before, uh, and we became less effective. You know, it's it's difficult. It's a difficult balance when you that's your job. You know, so I remember Willie put you know pulling me in one day and saying, look, you know, we're going to have to just accept. Um, I probably not got booked for three or four games, but probably didn't didn't have much of an impact in the game. And Willie was like, look, you know, we're going to have to accept you. You're going to get booked, but we want you, we want you to get back to what you were doing before. Which... So obviously, you you left Aberdeen at the end of that season. Um, you made exactly 80 appearances for Aberdeen, uh, scoring 10 goals in your two seasons here. And it was ultimately Oldham Athletic that you ended up joining in the summer of 1994. We kind of touched upon it earlier on. Oldham had just been relegated from the from the Premier League. And how did you how did you find kind of adjusting? back to life in the English divisions after your spell here and I mean you kind of touched on it earlier on that you felt on day one of pre-season training that you regretted the move it went well for me I mean personally I think I was there three seasons I think two of them I was kind of player of the year and so from a personal point of view it went well the start was difficult Joe Royal had, I think they had this process where the, the, first, the new players used to get persecuted for a few games I remember my debut Scored, uh, you know, two goals as good as that as a Torino goal. You know, in the we played Charlton at home, we beat them five two, and I scored two. Um, and but I managed to kind of have a little bit of a fallout with Willie and Willie Willie Donachie, who was Joe's assistant, and Joe just before they left to go to Everton. So within five or six games, the guy who had signed me left to go to Everton. As a team, they were completely different to us. You know. In some ways, we could have done with some of what Oldham had, and Oldham could have done with some of what Aberdeen had. I being able to pass the ball, you know, we it was no joke. Our our training sessions, we used to do our possession sessions. Well, I, I used to call them give ball away sessions because that's what we did. We just literally, you know, this idea that counter pressing is is a new thing. It's not. It's uh, been in the game a long, long time. We were at Oldham. That's what we did as a team. We were we were very much set up to try and win the ball back as quick as we could. When we got it, we weren't that great at keeping all of it or doing much with it. So it was uh, it was a bit of a contrast. But in actual fact, I kind of felt fouled. Graham Sharp took over after uh, when when George left, and I found myself out of the team eventually. I had a period out of it, but then got back in with Graham and Colin Harvey, and then sort of I think I won the Player of the Year that year, and the following year, um, the final year. Got injured halfway through it, a couple of in a hernia, and and, uh, and I nearly lost my finger to it to uh, in a dog fight. Not fighting a dog, but my dogs were having a fight, and uh, that, that 
cost me about six weeks of my career. So personally, it was okay. It was actually decent, but it, it you know, as a club, the club was just on the the beginning of a slump. You know, the, it just um, the success that had prior to that will probably never return. And it was a shame. You definitely got the feeling that you were you were at the back end of that. Those days had gone, and I just missed the missed the crest of a wave, if you like. So. I knew, but I did know sort of straight away. I, I don't. I had this real weird gut feeling. In one of my first training sessions at Oldham, and I was like, "Shit, I've left. Um, I've left a really good position to come to a to a position that I shouldn't be in. You know, I should be. I was better than than them actually at the time. That sounds really conceited, but I was. You know, my looking back again, I probably was thinking my head was probably not in the best place. Um, for the five or six months up to joining Oldham and then realising when I'd signed for Oldham that I'd kind of just put all my eggs in the wrong basket. You know, I got on with it and cracked on, but I think that I had definitely like a sinking feeling. Um, whereas at Aberdeen, it'd be different. You know, I had, a, I had a different kind of a, you know, this is the right place for me. I think even at Blackburn, I had a, I had a sense of feeling like I belonged there. Um, maybe what Watford started to wane when, the manager got the sack, Steve Harrison, and one or two players who I'd gotten really well with, they left. Um, that you know, so, you, so it's interesting, you know, belong, it's from a psychological point of view. We all want to feel like we belong. So that's why people have support football teams, you know, feeling like you belong uh, and connected with others is a huge motivation in, in all human psychology. Following on from your, your time at Oldham, you had spells with Stockport County, Huddersfield, Bury. Uh, back up to Scotland for Livingston before finishing your playing career with Chesterfield. Uh, and then you eventually made the move into management, taking the reins at Chesterfield in April 2007, where you remained until the end of the 2008-2009 season. Was that just, you know, the, the management, was that something you wanted to do or that just something that you you fell into? A little bit of both, to be honest, uh, Graham. It was, um, so again, the, the, Oldham, was a, the Oldham experience then, I managed to sort of um, get my next move was major move was to Huddersfield. In the meantime, I had the uh, a loan move to Stockport whilst I was out of contract. It was the year before the Bosman ruling came in, so again, you know, sliding doors and all the rest of it. There was an older who were asking for a lot of money for me, and so I didn't actually move till um, I think it was sort of back end of August, maybe even about this time September time to, to Huddersfield. And again, that was my sort of probably the last chance to to kickstart my career again. Huddersfield were in the championship at the time, bottom of the league, uh, managed to get in the team, help them turn it around. But then had injuries and illnesses and suspensions and this never happened. So my career kind of went that way from there. You know, it was like a, a slippery slope. Ended up at Chesterfield in my sort of early 30s. So, you know, going down the way, it's not it's not great. Especially if you're a midfield player and your legs are starting to 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 betray you. Um so I do the coaching but you know, I did the start doing the coaching badges. Oh, actually I started studying psychology whilst I was at Oldham. That was um that was a kind of one of the things in the last year I was there. I'd probably started to see the end of the road and, and was interested in it. So started studying uh, and in tandem started doing the coaching courses. So by the time I got to Hood, uh, Chesterfield. It was a kind of a quirk of, again, you know, sliding doors moment, I suppose. 
the then the chairman of Chesterfield, who I signed for, uh, ended up in prison for money laundering. And um, fortuitously, I suppose I was the most experienced player there. And the physio, a guy called Dave Rushbury, took over. The club had gone bankrupt, basically, and the supporters took... We were one of, I think we were the first supporters-owned club. Um, and there was no money, so it was a question of everyone had to sort of muck in and... Dave Rushby asked me to help him out. That became assistant manager's role for a year. Then he got the sack. But by that time, I start, obviously started to do the coaching badges, studying psychology as well, part-time, doing a little bit of playing, but not, not too much. Dave got the sack. I took over, actually, as caretaker when we were in Division 1. Uh, managed to keep up, keep the team in the division. Uh, and actually, at that time, I was probably ripe to go into management. I was 34. And these days, I would have got the job, I think. Um, but at the time, the chairman was very keen for me to get some experience working alongside somebody with more experience. So a guy called Roy McFarland um, was uh, given the job and I was his assistant for four years, I think. Um, so I did all that, you know, went through, got all the coaching badges, finished my degree in, in psychology, then got the job, as you say, in 2007 after Roy left. I uh, did okay. We, we, we just missed out on the playoffs both years, but... I was then out of contract and um, and that's when it ended because, again, ironically, another another money man came into Chesterfield and the old chairman sold his shares to him, said to him that he, he wanted him to have his choice of manager. So I my contract wasn't renewed in 2009. I do have one final management question. Now, hopefully you can confirm or put a rumour to bed. But is there any truth in what I read that you had applied for the Aberdeen job after Jimmy Calderwood had departed in 2009? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, yeah, I think I did. It was around that time, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I may have spoke. I may have spoken to Willie. I can't remember if I did or not. I might be doing him a disservice. I think Willie was the director of football, something like that. But yeah, I mean, I can understand from Aberdeen's point of view why why they wouldn't. Uh, you know, they would, I, I, did it? Was it the, there was a Danish guy or a was a foreign manager? S, began his Stolfa, that's him, yeah. I, he, he either got the job, I think, after Jimmy or maybe before. I can't remember. I seem to remember it was him who eventually got the job. But yeah, I did. I, I definitely applied for it because it would have been um, it would have been one of the jobs that was available when I was out of when I was out of work. That's the hardest thing about being a manager is being out of work. I mean, uh, I was speaking to Gary Caldwell this morning, who's um, someone I, I worked with at Wigan, really good young manager. Um, made a bad decision actually going to Chesterfield the whole place uh, and then you know every every job at the lower level is is so tough you know the, the guys in the Premier even Jürgen will be the first to admit you know his his, um, his time at Mainz was much 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 tougher than his time at Liverpool is or will ever be um, it's not easy at all so anyone who makes a success of it at the lower levels is has done brilliantly, you know, and it's it's not easy. It was um it was actually Mark McGee that got the job after Jimmy Calderwood. There you go. And I think a lot of Aberdeen fans would have uh, I think a lot of Aberdeen fans would have rather seen Lee Richardson in charge. Well, I think that's it. Yeah, you, you put, uh, that's that's just uh, that's just uh, yeah, little light bulb in there. I remember now. Yeah, Mark. And to be fair to Mark, I think he'd would he have had this Reading experience? You know, he'd have had quite a lot of experience down here, wouldn't he? By then, yeah, he'd been like Reading, Wolves, I think Leicester, I think. So yeah, he was a yeah, very, so that, very experienced coach by that point. Yeah, so that makes sense, and he's he'd be really his mate as well from the old days. So 
yeah, that 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 would have probably made sense to me. That you know, I could understand why you've gone for for Mark McGee, but yeah. So yeah, your career since leaving management has been probably one of the more interesting ones that any ex Aberdeen player has embarked upon, and we just want to touch on that briefly, if that's all right. So you touched on it earlier on. You you undertook a psychology degree during your time at, at Oldham Athletic. What was it in particular about psychology that kind of piqued your interest? It's everything, isn't it? It's a, you know the everything we experience is is through our you know this uh, lump of flesh that's in our skulls. You know, there's all the interesting questions, all the um, all the experiences we have are basically you know seen through the lenses of our own minds and what what that what that constitutes and in sport it's um you know largely or, and was at the time when I was involved as a player just ignored really in any real degree people still try and ignore it you know they still don't want to face up to to it um people build realities that aren't necessarily true uh which is interesting in itself so it was it was just really, a, I suppose, largely down to make sense. And a lot of it, my experiences in Aberdeen, probably, and my own sort of experiences um, that just fascinated me with it. I started a social science course for my foundation degree, which covered the right, you know, politics and, you know, social policy and a bit of psychology. And it was always just, just interested me. Um, and I had a sort of a bit of a gut feeling hunch as well that perhaps if I went through the whole gamut, it was an option if I was to get all the the badges and do all the all the hard yards that maybe my experiences as a player, as a coach and a manager, and then as a qualified psychologist would actually give me a bit of a unique perspective. So, and that that might be valued at some stage. So, you know. Touch wood, it's seeming to pan out a little bit that way. I think in the last few years, particularly, COVID has probably <laughs> it's done a lot of uh, you know it's done a lot of good for the profession. If we, if you like you know, those those naysayers who always talked about it being a lot of guff or whatever, uh, you know, even some of them have had to go and have a chat with somebody. So we're now, um, yeah, it's uh, it's just a fact of life. We've some of the myths around the mind and human behaviour and what it is and what it's not I kind of need dispelling so I'm more than happy to do that you know we have this thing around mental health even that that's um, so unhelpful or has been up until recently people are now starting to realise that you know there are natural processes that are just generally challenging you know human nature is by definition challenging anxiety stress the you know fight flight response these are evolutionary processes that we we all have um that that make life difficult um low mood you know homeostasis staying balanced throughout the day uh hormones these are all things that affect us uh, and mean that it's that life can be really tough things that happen in people's lives you know you you all on the call will have lost somebody you you love you'll have lost you'll have lost your job you'll have you'll have suffered loss and pain and that's that's difficult sometimes to handle. So we've had decades and centuries maybe even of, of ignoring that and trying to, you know, uh, control it with things like, you know, things like alcohol and drugs and stuff like that, which is people still still do to some extent. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's a balance in everything in life, but 
it's just a fascinating area, and I think it's, it relates to everything, and it's best, especially in sport. Um, and I think more and more people are accepting that. And obviously, you've since then moved into the elite level as a sports psychologist, where you've worked with the likes of Lancashire County Cricket Club, and you're currently obviously working with Liverpool as their performance psychology consultant, working within Jurgen Klopp's backroom setup. Can you just give like our listeners just a little bit of insight, Lee, just into kind of your day-to-day work with, with Liverpool? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to, you know, there are sort of the squad, the, the first-team squad, there is always, within a first-team squad, my, my role is, is really to support the players primarily and kind of involved with overseeing kind of projects that involve a number of staff keeping a focus on certain specific groups of players, okay? So we've got under-23s, we've got new players, we've got players on the fringe. So we need to monitor that and keep keep an eye on their needs as much as anything. So I'm involved with that. 23s as well, lone players. But when it comes to the sort of first-team squad, they're obviously individuals who are highly skilled. Um, they all have different pressures and different challenges. And um, it tends to be, and it's tended to be wherever I've been, and would have been the case at Aberdeen when I was a player or, or whatever I've played. And I would have probably fitted into these categories in different degrees at different stages. You tend to get a, a third of players. I mean, this is a rough, a rough estimate, so it's not not scientific, but it's my experience. You'll have a third of players that are kind of switched off, and you know have their own view of the world and their own view of reality, and their explanation for how the world is and how their performance is will not involve anything to do with psychology or any real acceptance that there's, there's, there's even anything at play there, you know. You then have a middle third who were kind of a little bit swung by their experience and, you know, if something happens that, that does kind of affect them, then they might be more inclined to to, to seek a bit of advice or to, to tap into, a, you know, someone like myself. Um, but sometimes as well, they'll be, they'll be swayed the other way. And then you get another third who are, who are very open and would be more than happy to sort of um, involve someone like myself on their day-to-day and their, their you know, their every, you know, their, their kind of experience of being a player and see it as a part of what, what they do. So, and that's been a rough kind of guide for me wherever I've been. So even if that's a third of players, you know, in the squad at Liverpool, we've got 30 players. So you've got 10 players there that are more than happy to sort of sit down and have a chat. And if you can have a dip, make a difference with those lads, then you, that's, that's significant. Um, you don't have to have, a, have, a, have an impact on everybody. And of course, then behind all those players, as a whole, you know, we've got 150 staff working at, at AXA training ground, probably 50 to 60, specifically around the first team squad. So there's a lot of pressure on those guys, you know, to, and, girl, and ladies to uh, deliver what they do. So, you know, pressure comes into it. Um, the pressure to get results, obviously, and, and that's uh, something that might, persuade somebody to you know have a chat catch up with me and just go through a few things so and obviously mental health uh concerns have always been there you know it's injury is one of the most challenging elements for any player long-term injury particularly and that loss of identity you know all football players see themselves as predominantly primarily footballers so if that's taken away from them for any reason Injury being one of them, and it's it's a shattering blow. And sometimes, you know, your public might say, "Well, what you know, what is such and such who's a multimillionaire? What have they got to worry about?" 
it's you know the money becomes secondary when you lose your identity when you lose your your reason for being it doesn't matter how much money you've got you're going to feel pretty shit uh and that's that's the fact um and obviously that that extends to every everyone's experience of losing a job losing a role losing a sense of who you are can be massively challenging and that that happens a lot to the sportsmen in general but and especially footballers do you think, Lee, that your profile, you know, being a former player and also a manager gives you some more credence amongst the players now? You know, they know that you've been there, you've seen it, you know what they're going through. We've kind of got this kind of antiquated idea within football about how sometimes if people come from the outside or they come with new ideas, it can be people can be very standoffish or very judgmental. So, yeah, do you think your your past helps you in your in your current role? I think so, yeah. I think that that's been said a few times to me that, you know, I do think I agree with you. It's not... It shouldn't be the case that, um, you know, in my opinion, every every football club should have somebody who's involved in this area. Um, you know, even to you know, part time is is fine to some extent. You know, I tend to I tend to split my time between Lancashire and Liverpool, so I'll do sort of three days um, on site at Liverpool as a psych. I mean, to some extent, I think it's it's not right to be there all the time. Um, because there's not necessarily the need for to be there all the time. Um, to some extent, you can become part of the, the problem um, if you're in there all the time. Sometimes coming away from an environment and coming back into it gives you a, a bit of a fresh perspective. Um, but, yeah, it has been said, and I think it's fair to say, and probably was part of my hunch, uh, Gavin, as I said earlier, that um, you know, being a player, being a coach and a manager – and a psychologist uh, does, I think, give me a perspective that uh, is multi-dimensional in that, in some senses. I know it's important that I've trained and qualified as a psychologist because it's not just about being a you know being an ex-player, being a decent bloke, and all the rest of it. Although that is it is a heck, heck of a part of the battle. I do think um, you know I think it's it's changing. I think there's been more of an acceptance of not just people like myself. Because um, there won't be that many people like myself. That's not, again, not being arrogant or, con- um, you know, overconfident about that. It's just the nature of um, well, my knowledge of footballers. Uh, we've tended not to be overly academic in the past, and psychology is definitely ac- an academic pursuit if you want to become a chartered psychologist. It's it's not an easy process. It's probably been the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, you know, it's taken me the best part. I started studying in 1997, and I'll never stop studying. And my trainee uh, training to be a chartered psychologist has taken, you know, the best part of 20 years. So it's it's not an easy process. Um, but yeah, in terms of actually at the coal face working in sport, I think it does. I think it does give me an advantage to know what it feels like, not just to, not just to you know, have read about it. It's a hugely interesting area um, that you're involved in now, Lee, and we wish you all the best in your future work in the area. And it's an area that we actually hope that we see, you know, Aberdeen continue to develop. And now they've certainly, you know, started to step up to the plate around things like sports science and all the data analytics and all that side of things. But this is a side of the game that I don't think Aberdeen have even scratched the surface on yet. Um, But this is going to be the final question for you, Lee. And um, we're going to bring it, Back to Aberdeen, obviously, because that's what we do. It's the same question as well that we ask 
all of our guests. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? It's in terms of football, the, the football player, me, you know, because I suppose I've got, I've had one, two, three, well, let's say four careers now. Yeah, it means a hell of a lot. It means, you know, it's probably been um, the, the standout period of my career in many ways because of the experience in Europe, because of the, you know, the battles and the, the, the strife and the fact that people like yourself are still interested in having a chat with me. Um, is is also relevant, you know. I don't do too many podcasts for Watford. I don't do too many uh, Blackburn Rovers ones. Uh, although to be fair, Blackburn Rovers is probably another one where there has been some success. I think whenever there's been success, then that's probably what what stands the test of time. But for me, it means a lot in terms of you know actually as a young bloke going up to the northeast of Scotland and. Uh, you know, having a go was, you know, I was pretty, I'm pretty proud of myself for doing that. I think I could have easily sort of stuck around at Blackburn and, you know, be interesting to know what would have happened that way. But I, I do, I am proud to have played for Aberdeen, that's for sure. But it's a, certainly a club that I do have a lot of, uh, still have a lot of feeling for. And again, when I talk about things like, you know, it's a shame that you can't come, you know, you can't go on to another level. That's only because I know it's it's a club that deserves to to get to that next level. There's so many, you know, in terms of the quality of club it is and people around it and the city, you know, it's way ahead of so many of the English cities and clubs that are down here. But just because of that geographical and structural, you know, uh, quandary that it's in, it, it maybe that it, maybe that's always going to be a difficult one. But yeah, um, means a lot to me means that I'll always probably get asked to do a podcast every 10 years or so. Lee Richardson, thank you again for joining us on the ABZ Football Podcast. We appreciate your time. Stand free. Cheers, guys. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 10. Yes, 10 of the ABZ Football Podcast, where we'll review our SPFL Premiership fixture against Johnston, and we'll look ahead to our first visit to Paisley of the season to face St Mirren. And to mark the milestone of reaching 10 episodes, we're delighted to bring you an exclusive interview with one of the most naturally gifted players to ever pull on the famous red shirt. It's the Portsoy Pelly, the unbelievable Ian Jess. We look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you in association with Aberdeen Gas Services. Aberdeen Gas Services are your local family-run business of choice for boiler installations, repairs and servicing that you can rely on. Contact Aberdeen Gas Services for a free quote today on 01224 734 646 or visit their website at www.aberdeengasservices.co.uk.